Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this. It is your infrequent flying podcast pilot episodes. As always, I am joined by our three standard pilots, our bog standard garden variety pilots. Uh, uh, Parker, how are you? <laughs> bog standard, yeah. To be honest, identical from last week. I have nothing to report. Yeah, uh, it's weird that we do a podcast so soon after the last one. Uh, there, there will be nothing to report, which is which is good. I'm almost in shock. This is, you know, within a week, we're back seeing each other. Wow, unbelievable. I know, I know. Goddess, uh, how are you? I'm good. Enjoying um, a post-operational leave, uh, which is nice. Um, uh, lots of jobs to do around the house, which is maybe not so nice in the rain. But um, unfortunately, no fly. Oh, I have been flying my little mini drone inside the house uh, <laughs> hey, when I've been allowed. And the dog doesn't attack it. But other than that, not so much aviation for me. Excellent. And Dunk, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Not so much aviation for us either, because uh, it's been a bit icy and rainy and miserable, and we're not allowed to fly in the ice and the rain. Either the uh, if the runway ices up, that's it. We're not allowed to go off it. So sadly, we've been uh, we've been sat on our own. But that must be the quickest introduction we've done, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It's approximately... we whiz off down some <laughs> rabbit hole. It was it was twenty three think... minutes shorter than the last one. <laughs> we we haven't finished the intros yet, Doug. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> has a freezing fog lifted from uh, from your runway yet? The freezing fog. Last yeah, we, week we you couldn't little... fly because of freezing fog. I do believe. Yeah, we. That we was your, that was your last excuse time, last time. Yeah, that was your. It's basically fear of flying. Yeah, we've gone through ev- every. It, well, it's just that James has been flying quite, quite a lot of Cranwell. <laughs> it was you that was saying we couldn't fly in it. It was me that had to remind you. No, we can take off in it, Parky. It's oh, uh, yeah, Goddess is hiding that's under the for table. for you, isn't it? <laughs> Goddess would be hiding under the table if it was a bit foggy. You're back in the bar somewhere because any air defender worth his salt is like, oh, a bit foggy out. Whilst us and your, brave and your... ground attack pilots would be launching off in it. Yeah, absolutely lost, diverting somewhere, break the jet. <laughs> Carnage. <laughs> well, don't well, you listen? Whilst don't we you... were sat around, whilst we were sat around with uh, with not much to do, sort of waiting for the freezing uh, fog to clear. One of the things that we were uh, able to do was actually watch quite a lot of footage from the um, 30th anniversary of the Gulf War. So I know Goddard was uh, sending a lot of uh, a lot of stuff out on that, and of course, it was uh, it's amazing that 30 years have gone by. Um, but I, I guess probably the last 
conflict where the Royal Air Force went in um, properly at low level. Um, I'm not sure about 2003 in Iraq, but certainly the 1991 um, Iraq um, Gulf War was um, was the last time I think that we went in properly at low level. And so, and bizarrely, sort of, it, it, I know it was a week ago, and we were talking about the fact that Goddard and I uh, joined on the 6th of January, and were things were hotting up in the Gulf. But um, we uh, just whilst we were polishing the uh, the brass underside of our sinks and, uh, and sleeping on the floor, um, the boys were, um, were were rushing in at low level in the, in the tornadoes. Um, and uh, I think we mentioned last time, I remember actually someone coming in and saying, that's it, that's it, gone to war. And uh, this week we're, uh, we're very lucky because, and the, the reason why we're doing two podcasts so close back to back is because we've got a guest, which we've been talking about for a long time. And uh, we've just been um, successful in our failure, I guess, to actually get a guest. But so, but today we've got uh, our first guest in a long time. And I'm very pleased to uh, introduce uh, Nick Hurd, who flies with me at Cranwell. Um, and I'm not going to uh, try and do the honours and introduce him. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to um, uh, let him introduce himself. So, uh, hello, Nick. Well, good evening, uh, Doug. Thank you. Uh, very nice introduction. And... Um... Yes, I mean, I'm quite interested to see you were polishing your boots in January 1991. I have to say, I probably, if I'd been given the option at the time, I might have thought, you know, I quite fancy that right now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But, well, it's um, funny, you know, um, uh, perhaps if you, if you just give us a little bit of a background about um, which squadron were you on at the time? Yeah. Well, OK, so I um, so I joined the Air Force in, in, I mean, to go right back, 1981, um, and uh, gone through my training I'd done a creamy, a so-called creamy tour, which meant, you know, I'd back on Jet Provost at Cranwell to do an instructing tour there in the sort of mid-80s. Then I got onto the Tornado in 87 and finished up, then posted to uh, uh, 15 Squadron, uh, which is then based at uh, Larbrook in Germany. Um, and uh, so I joined that, so that was my second job. But my first job on Tornadoes was uh, was Larbrook in Germany, which at the time was still sort of, still very much in the sort of Cold War days. Um, you know, still very much of... Uh, East versus West, we had our sort of, you know, we spent all days, you know, had lots of aeroplanes and we flew a lot and we, lots of low flying around Germany and, um, uh, and that was a life, you know, and very, as you, thank you, you know, Dunk, it's a very, you know, very social life out in Germany and very great fun, but work hard, play hard and, and that's the way it was. Um, interesting how the situation had developed though, because at the end of 89, the Berlin Wall came down and the Cold War effectively ended. So I think a lot of it at that time was scratching your heads thinking, well, that's it, really, isn't what's going to happen now. Um, so, so we carried on doing what we're doing in Germany for for a while, and all of a sudden, in August 1990, of course, then then Iraqi base Q8, which nobody thinks a great deal of for a day or two until it does seem to start winding up a little bit, and um, and we start getting messages to say, well, old chaps, this is getting a bit serious, and there might be a war, and you might be in it, which is all of a sudden, a, you know, very much against. Uh, what we'd all signed up for, really. Just to stop you there, that, that was one of the points we made last week when Dunk and I were polishing the undersides of our sink, you know, on a uh, on a bull night and the, <laughs> the war kicked off. Yes. We did have, uh, I couldn't remember how many, I think it was about 10 or 20 people actually left IoT at that point because of the, exactly the point you made, you know, it's not yeah. what it's up for. Well, it's, it's, I remember Dunk said that to me the day or two ago, and I, I was fascinated by that, to be absolutely honest, because, I, I, you know, well, I, I guess that's it. And strangely enough, when I'd gone through training back in 82, I was doing training at Cranwell, and the Falklands happened. And the same sort of thing, the same sort of thing came over, hang on, 
this is that's a war, isn't it? That's no, I'm clearly not going to be directly involved with it right now. But all of a sudden, they, they, and sort of, uh, I did feel that the attitude sort of changed in the airport a bit. You know, all of a sudden it's, uh, and certainly in 1990 it changed a bit. It's, it's all very pleasant and jolly and all that sort of stuff. But all of a sudden it was, well, don't expect to walk away from this, chaps. You know, this this is quite serious, and you you've got to go do it. Um, and it's sort of very much my, you know, and and, and, and I'll sort of um, add to it. And, and nobody, I mean, as far as I recall, sort of taking a few steps forward here now, is uh, bear in mind that more or less the whole sort of GO1 force, Bruggen, Larbrook and Marham, were all sort of worked up for this. Um, as far as I remember, all the number of, all the crews that were involved in that workup, uh, I believe only one pilot in the midst of all that lot said he couldn't do it. He, he was only one pilot I'm aware who, who eventually said, you know, I can't do this. They took him off flying for a bit, spoke to the medic or the psychot, who knows what. He Did they back. send him to the Phantom? Was it <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah, going to say, yeah. Dunk, you were, you were still at IFC. It can't have been you. <laughs> no, well, he got taken. He never flew a tornado again. That was it. You know, he, but, but as far as nobody else, you know, stepped away, said, I can't do this, which was a great, you know, great wow. testament to and I'll sort of perhaps come on to that a bit later, you know, uh, when it actually sort of comes down to the fighting. But for the whole workup, everyone just did what they had to do and, you know, and we were all ready to go. So, but yes, but I can understand perhaps back at those, you know, IoT days when people decide that right then, they, yes, <laughs> what am I doing this for? When this could happen, I'll step out and do something else. What was the feeling on the squadron, though, when you, you sort of got that, you know, the, the info started to come through that uh, suddenly this is, a you know, one of the most advanced air forces in the world, um, and suddenly you're going to be going up against it um, with heavily defended ground targets. Was was the feeling, you know, a palpable excitement? Was it, um, you know, were you, was there... Well, clearly that one bloke was crapping himself, wasn't he? But I guess, you know, there was probably a mix of feelings. How did, how did you feel? Well, well, I, I mean, I, I sort of... Uh... I don't know. I started paying a bit more attention to uh, EW lessons for a start, you know, <laughs> start listening. Oh, my God, what's that radar? What's that, Sam? You know, and how do I counter that one? That sort of became more of an interest, shall we say. Um, I imagine it focuses the mind a bit. Well, <laughs> more than anything, you yeah. know, and, and when, they, when they start saying, oh, by the way, you, you have written your will, haven't you? And you have got this, everything's prepared, you know, everything's sorted. Yeah. And you think, my goodness me, this really is getting quite serious, isn't it? I mean, I do recall one strange day. I think it probably was late in the August of that, August 1990, when things were sort of settling down a bit. Well, we're not settling down. You know, no one really knew what was going on. And I think I was I was running, you know, doing the desk one day on the squadron. And it started off in the morning that it was sort of there was a sort of gentle call from the operations centre saying, just just how many crews do you have at the moment on 15? Who's on leave? And you know, it was August. People are on leave and all this sort of stuff. So so I come back and say, oh, we've got about you know eight and a half crews or something, you know. And 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 then about by lunchtime it was okay. Get all those crews together, tell them to pack their bags, they're going to the Middle East tomorrow, we don't know where, and we don't know when they're coming back. So it was all sort of wound up into, into mayhem, and then by tea time, it was always in a classic military way, oh, forget all that, no, you're not going anywhere, just stand down again. And, and it all went in the, in the, in the space of the day, of, uh, of you know, whipping up to mayhem and, and, and down again. So, strange sort of day. And I, I guess one of the points there, Nick, is, um, <clears throat> you know, from... But anyone who's listening, who's done it in recent years, you know, because clearly the last 20 years have been pretty busy in the uh, in the military. Yeah. But yeah. at that point, we were kind of 
we were a non-deployable military, if you like. You know, you were there in Germany to take out the, those sort of fixed targets. So you didn't have a bag in the loft with all your stuff ready to go. You, you know, you probably weren't weapons trained in terms of a personal weapon or, or those sorts of things or gas masks. Or, you know, you may well have been for the sort of the uh, nuclear, biological and chemical role. But it wouldn't have been easy. You know, you'd have been thrashing around wondering what to take, I guess. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we, we, we didn't deploy either. We went to Deci for a couple of weeks. We went to Goose Bay and all this sort of stuff. But we didn't. We weren't routinely deploying places. Um, I mean, for example, Germany, Germany crews, we, we weren't uh, tanker qualified. We didn't go tanking. Why? Um, because we didn't, we didn't, you know, we weren't, all we had to do, as you say, we had to go to East Germany, trash an airfield and come back. That was our job. So, uh, so Marum squadrons did do tanking, but we didn't. And that was a major part of the training upgrade for, for Germany squadrons was to go learn how to tank. I mean, and me being sort of, by then, a sort of squadron QFI, having never tanked, it took me about, I think, a fortnight from going from never having tanked to being a day, night, rear seat qualified, air-to-air refueling instructor. Because that's the way it was, you know, that we had no one else to do it. I sort of had to go in the front seat, daytime, and had to go in the back seat, daytime, and then did it all at night. And that was it. Oh, Nick, that's it. You've got to go off and do all the pilots now, you know, at night in the back seat. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, so, so it was all part of the sort of mayhem and and, and sort of you know, uh, yeah, we just weren't ready for this at all in, in, in many ways. Um, yeah, so, so sorry, can, so Jerry, can I, yeah. So can I just ask about your workup then? Uh, when you're in Germany, you're obviously very prepared to do a, sing, a single thing. Uh, like I said, then you're going to go over and trash an airfield. How, how uh, similar was what you, what you were expected to do in, in, in the Gulf to what you were trained to do in... Germany. Um, well, in, in fairness, it was reasonably good, you know, in that we could, we were still essentially aiming for a, a sort of a low-flying war. Now, you know, we'll come on to that later. It's whether that was actually such a good idea or not. But our main job was was you know to go and attack East German airfields with this this new weapon, this this JP two three three weapon, this this runway attack weapon. Hmm. So, which is which is designed to be dropped over an airfield at two hundred feet, you know, and and that's what you have to do. So we spent our time doing that, or, or we do, you know, we're doing attacks with thousand-pound bombs, or this, that, and the other. Um, but essentially, we, we were still low flying. So we, um, we were doing a sort of nighttime. We would do um, TFR training, you know, terrain following radar training. So, so in many ways, it was, you know, it was good. It was appropriate. Um, but there were still lots of things that we didn't know how to do, you know. And like I say tanking was, in particular, was one of them. Um, and indeed, and then having learned how to tank, then training training the bladder to sort of last for four hours rather than an hour and a half, you know, just things like that I had to, I had to sort it out. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, and as so a lot of, uh, yeah, so there was still, yes, a lot of, a uh, lot of new stuff, but we, we weren't completely. And in fairness, I mean, perhaps in those days, Germany squadrons, I think we were seen as, you know, that was the front line and probably, probably on the tornado force, we, we or the GL1 force, we were certainly seen, you know, that was, we were the, we were the boys sort of thing, and probably the, we were the best um, out there because we did sort of you know we did probably work hard, worked hardest and played. We had more exercises, all that sort of stuff, you know, and it kept you kept us pretty sharp. So, how long, Nick, from getting the nod? You know, you're going to now deploy. Was it fairly quick again? And you know, tank you tank the jets out, and that was it. You were you were off. Well, no, eventually things settled down a bit, and eventually some so some jets did deploy quite quickly. Now, eventually, it was Bruggen Wing that sort of seemed to get get involved earlier on. I mean, an interesting sort of mistake the Air Force made again, coming back to this idea of not not knowing how to deploy. The, their um, 
the, the old their airships at the time decided, oh my goodness, we with this going on, we've got to send some tornadoes down. Who should we send? Well, we send we send Bruggenwing, but we'll cherry pick all these sort of fourth leaders, pairs leaders, QIs, and send them all down um, to to sort of form the first sort of wave. Now that was a complete utter disaster, you know, because you've got four squadrons with different sort of you know, everyone who's got a different idea, they've all got slightly different tactics. There's lots of, of course, everyone's got their own slightly different ideas, all pulling different directions. And it was such a disaster to oh, start wow. with. Just from experience, Nick, I totally agree. So for the boys that don't know, QI, that's the qualified weapons instructor. Sorry, yes, of course, yeah. And Sorry, if you yeah. ever want to have an argument, probably get three, <laughs> Javier, I would suggest, weapons instructors. <laughs> we get them in a room together and they just disagree on everything. I mean, yes. I do know what you mean. There's just, no, we, and no, they're always don't. right. Parky, <laughs> as a Harry Kiwi, I never argued. <laughs> he did. That's so. That's so interesting. So, yeah, so how did the uh, different uh, squadrons uh, evolve? Sorry, so, sorry, sorry. So, how did the different squadrons evolve? I would, have, I would have assumed, from, as a complete outsider looking in, that you all had common practice and that you all worked from the same manual. Well, that's so you yes. think, maybe. And that's, yes, just to, to a large extent there is, but there's just always the little quirks and different ideas to sort of say, well, we should attack this way or this, that, the other. Um, eventually, the Air Force sort of, they, they quickly got the idea that that was not a good thing to do. And then, hey, why don't we send squadrons down? That's what we have squadrons for. <laughs> you know, and, and because then you've got the right balance of people and, you know, you've got half the squadron who will just, you know, as you want, who will just do what they're told. You know, they'll just, you point them at the right target and they'll go and do the job without arguing, they'll go and do it. So, so it finally settled down to a proper squadron rule on a squadron rotation. So then, you know, and then a plan actually came out and, and then we got slated to go out in sort of uh, November of 1990, basically to sort of replace one of the Bruggen, I think seven, I can't remember, one of the Bruggen squadrons. And uh, um, although at the time, you know, by then, of course, if you recall, the, there was this deadline on by then, the United Nations deadline, the 15th of January for uh, uh, Saddam to leave Kuwait. And we were sort of deployed in November with no fixed date for return, but kind of then thinking, right, okay, well, if it all happens on the 15th or 16th of January, uh, I think we're going to be there. So, um, so there we are. And we, deploy, we, and we deployed to Bahrain. Uh, of course, we had jets in, you know, to Bahrain and Dharan and then Tabuk over on the, on the west side of Saudi. Um, but I was very happy to go to Bahrain because that means we got put in the, in the Sheraton Hotel. <laughs> um, which you know, I didn't argue with at all. And, and that's the way to go to war. Absolutely, how the air force <laughs> should go to war, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> if, uh, exactly. if we do get any army or navy listeners, well. which who always, always rag the Royal Air Force for Samsonite suitcases and hotels, um, well. You know, it, well it is the way to go to war. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Well, Parky Park Jr. is in the army, so, you know, he, he should be listening, shouldn't he? he, so make, he do you make him listen, Parky. He's out in the garden in a tent. I've got to say, Nick, yeah. I'm really, really um, finding that part about taking the part of the squadrons in uh, uh, squadrons interesting. What, what, would, what would then happen with the remainder of the squadron? Would you... Would it just be gutted of its all of all of its senior and experienced people? Uh, I think that's kind of what happened. Like I said, it was Bruger, so I didn't really see it happening directly because that yeah. was the other base. Uh, Larbrook, we were sort of left alone for a little while, but but yeah, so not only that, they sort of clean out all their so they left a bit sort of um, lacking in supervision on those squadrons as well. So so it's it was all a bit of a it was a daft sort of uh, way of doing things. Really, it was just it was just a knee jerk reaction. I think to say, oh, we you know that I guess they were um, uh, you know. 
concern that uh, you know politically we've got to get the right you know, we must get the very best people down there so let's just do that and that'll be fine but it, like I say, it all settled down and we got things properly sorted out and we painted the squadrons again and, now, and it worked much better now <laughs> one of the um one of the really um cool looking aircraft i think is the gulf war tornadoes when did you receive those paint jobs and we pretty pretty happy with them yeah so, that happened quite yeah that quite that came quite quite quickly actually we started they, they sort of be, they sort of became known as desert pink. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a they weren't pink, pink though, were they? So, but they, they started even in, you know even in, you know the, the Germany jets were still getting painted, all getting painted up as well. So it wasn't it wasn't just because the jets were essentially you know a bunch of jets were taken down and left in theatre. But um, but um, there was always a rotation of jets as well, as of course as, these, as there always is. But uh, so yeah, I, I think a lot of us thought oh, that was all yeah, decent enough. And in fact, of course, then when the war started, what did start happening, of course, as ground crew do, they start they start painting on. And we started getting some of that nice, uh, you know, some of the yeah. that you see. And they started painting bombs on the side for a number of missions that the jet's done and all this sort of stuff. So all the great traditions sort of sort of carried on, which is really good to see. And what did you do? And, and, sorry, Parky. What did you do sort of clearly out there in November, as you say? Um, but it didn't kick off proper like until yeah. middle of January. Yeah. So how were you training and what were you doing? And what was the clearly... You you know that you're on a war footing. What were you What were you doing? How were you getting ready to go and do what you were going to do? Well, the missions we we did a lot of. We had sort of two main areas that we could train in. We, we could go to fly around the Saudi desert. We, we did particularly like that because there was kind of nothing there. Clearly, uh, and we knew Iraq was going to be a little bit different, sort of from the scenery point of view. So what, we spent more time doing um, trips in down to Oman. Um, and that was about, and, and that was pretty good because that sort of gave us more of a reflection of how long the trips would be, because an hour, uh, Moman was about an hour and a half away. So we had to take off. We meet up with a, a tanker, you know, VC10 or Victor in those days. Um, trail down with the tanker, let off, let, let off from the tanker. Do, do spend an hour low flying around Oman, um, where there's a bit more stuff to go for and attack and all this sort of stuff. Then we could pull up, meet up with the tanker again, come home, and that whole thing came to about four hours. Which was very representative of the sort of length of trips we, we signed. Yeah. So, so in fact, that was that was that was pretty good. There was there was no bombing range there, unfortunately. We couldn't really drop any bombs, but at least we could do everything else, and we could do evasion and all the usual stuff. Um, and you know, so, so you know, fighter evasion, um, and and that was pretty good, you know. And we could do that night, day or night. So um, so that was that was pretty good sort of um, training, yeah. Nick, when um, I. Um... One of the things that we've been talking about in the last week <clears throat> was uh, John Nicholas has put a lot of really good stuff actually on uh, on Twitter about the sort of workout and the stuff that you're doing. I got into a conversation with him the other week about low flying because actually one of the crews that well I think they were from 14 Squadron um, had gone in. Uh, two of the guys were killed, young guys I think, yeah. um, because uh, Duncan I's uh, our flight commander had been on 14 squadron and then had come to initial officer training and um uh, I, you know was uh, was pretty cut up about the uh, this at the time when the guys had flown in and that was your um i was about to say your classic but it was hey look how low we can go and yeah, sort of yeah. you know possibly filming the shadow kind of yeah. thing yeah and yeah. clearly all of us at the time and subsequently as well have seen a huge amount of a video or uh, um, or photos of some incredibly low flying, and so at that time, had the 
you know, we're generally cleared to uh, operationally low fly at 100 feet. Were you had the rules gone out the window, or were you very specifically briefed to to drop lower in the uh, during the daytime during that training yeah. period? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think when they, I seem to recall again when the first teams did turn up in the Middle East, they basically went to sort of no rules whatsoever. We'll fly as low as we like, and that's that. But then I think when things settled down a bit, they did start saying, Ooh, "This is this is not. We must have some rules." So they started saying, "You know, not below 100 feet over the desert, something like that." You know, so and that's the way, and, and, and that was reasonable enough. And um, uh, and, and you know, I was happy enough to work to that. And all right, probably like all of us. Had, you know, we trained at operation low flying. And you know, how you sort of get better at it as you as you do it a little bit longer. And I was, you know, I think I eventually got settled down about I don't know. We'll talk about our, probably the, the height that you're happy with. I was probably about 130 feet or so. I reckon I could fly around all day at 130 feet, um, looking around and doing other things. You know, and, and occasionally go down a bit lower if I really had to. But I mean, the tornado was really good for low flying. In fairness, it was a super aeroplane for that. It perfect wing loading, the wings back, and everything. It was just superbly stable i had a trip in f-16 once i remember around the lake district years later um, rubbish yeah, two, two seasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely terrible. gutless nick yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, yeah do you know what it's, it is fantastic <laughs> to have you on to talk about the golf but that has just, i well, have to listen to these two boys bang on about yeah. how wonderful the f-16 is morning noon and night so <laughs> to, to hear you come in and say yeah it was not quite all it was cracked up to be has just well, made I, my evening. <laughs> well, I thoroughly enjoyed being as a Dutch one. I, I, I was at two, I was sitting in the back, but uh, we flew around. They wanted to go fly around the Lake District, which we did. I, I, it's like, well, I, I guess I dunk. It's like being in, you know, in the um, in the prefect at low level, you know, in, in bumpy conditions. I, I, my teeth nearly fell out. I think with all the bumping around this F sixteen. So I thought, yes, I think the tornado does this a little better actually. So. Anyway, so um, so yeah, anyway, so go back to yes. Yeah, I'm off. It's been great meeting you, Nick. <laughs> hey, uh, I I think the F16 turned. Was it 41 this week? Yeah, I bet. Ooh, probably yeah, 70s. Yeah, yeah. No, is that the 70s? Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Let Let's spin this golf war nonsense and talk about the F16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, we, Nick, were you um? Did you split into sort of day and night crews in that training period? And were you always going to stick to them, or did you swap around between day flying and night flying? Well, we were we were we were crewed up, obviously crewed up entirely. There, with pilot navigator, were crewed up. So in fact, you know, sharing rooms in the hotel. I mean, that, that was pretty hellish, you know. It was, <laughs> we had to share a room for God's sake, you know. So we were paired up like that. But then we but then we were also constituted, constituted four ships as well. So we were flying just as yes, we had that many people. But yeah, so so we had. I mean, so eventually, each squadron had sort of three, four ships of crews, you know, so, and we just, everyone just sort of, we just carried on flying like that. So I was routinely the, the number two to my boss, actually, John Broadbent, who's a, and Nigel Isdale was a, and I, I just spent, you know, just, we just flew around like that all the time, which, which is great, you know, because I mean, you know, again, you, you know how it is, you just sort of build up a little rapport within your four ship, you know, how things go, and it just sort of works nicely. So, and that's the way it was, yeah, right up until the war and during the war itself. Although, I although we might have got bigger. Made- do you think that made a difference? Because, um, you know, whenever I have flown sort of constituted, I've not flown a two-seat aeroplane, but, you know, constituted two ships or or, uh, or four ships, um, it, uh, you know, it really does make a difference after a sort of, after a week when you, when you really start understanding each other, you know, you, you know what they're thinking, you know how they, you know when, um, um, you know, when they're going to do things. Do you think that made a difference when it actually came to crossing the line on night one? Yeah, I think unquestionable. Yeah, yeah. So a constituted 
fallship or whatever is 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 the way to go. I mean, I think routinely for us on the uh, for us on the squadron, we didn't fly like that for day to day operations. You know, day to day, you know, like normal flying, we we didn't because it was just too difficult. You know, it is it's always up on the way and leave and this that and the other. So that wasn't the case. But certainly now, when when no one no one's going away. You know, we're all there together. Then putting it together as as four ships was uh, was absolutely way to go. And yes, we all felt. Can I just ask a quick, felt pretty good. Can I just ask a quick question? Uh, and all of you, please jump in on this. Why is the why is a four ship the, the way the way to go? It seems to be a bit of a consensus there as to that seems to be a particularly good idea. Uh, well, uh, go ahead, Nick. No, no, no. You go ahead. No, I mean, well, I was just going to say, it, it, there's a. The sort of minimum that you fly around in JB is a two ship where, you know, ultimately it is about it comes from way back in, um, you know, they did an element of this in the First World War, but Second World War, the way the Germans ended up flying. But the sort of what we term battle formation where there is uh, you fly about a mile and a half mile to two miles apart. Because just purely in terms of lookout, looking out of the window, you can cover the six o'clock and below and behind the other aeroplane when you are flying a bit wider apart if you fly when you're visual if you fly too wide you kind of lose you know you're now finding it difficult to see the other guy but we do fly like that these days because you've got all sorts of helmet systems that allow you to see the other person you know you call it detached mutual support so you've got that two ship together but if you are then looking to mass firepower whether it's in the bombing role that, that that Nick will talk about in a minute, or in the air-to-air role, um, you know, certainly in the air-to-air role, you have got a lot more options available to you. You can imagine with a four-ship, you can either sit together in what's called a wall formation and just cover a large portion of airspace, or you can split into two twos and kind of go counter-rotating, which means you've always got radars downrange. And uh... then there's reasons for doing that in the uh, in the bomb-dropping world as well, in terms of that massing firepower and and um, moving formations around the place. Oh, brilliant. So a four-ship means that uh, the guys at the front, the two guys at the front, and you, you generally call it card, so you, you'd fly in a box of aircraft, so the, the pair, exactly as God has just described, the pair at the front, and then you might have the pair at the back offset to try and stop it being easy for enemy enemy radars to just go, oh, there's the front pair, there's the back pair, so you might sit offset. But the idea is to try and um, if fighters were going to drop in behind the front pair, then the rear pair can have at those fighters trying to molest the, the front two guys. So tactically, it's, um, it, it's a very defensive formation. Well, I suppose it's defense o- offense, isn't it? You know, it, it's a bit of both. Um, and, it's, uh, and it comes from uh, a, a long time and learning learning lessons the hard way really as god has said back in uh, as far back as world war one but certainly world war two ah, and even with even with air-to-air threats that are beyond visual range and as god has said you know things have moved on from fighters dropping in behind you know weapons have massively mm. improved but it's just still a very versatile user it's just a four ship works that and it still does yeah uh, i just had to so on the gr1 force at the time with, with the we were effectively, you know, we were flying four ships, but for night time, effectively, we were still doing the same thing. We're still flying that sort of card formation that we sort of talked about, but we, we called this this is a so-called parallel track uh, uh, operation came in, where basically, you know, a pair would fly just just 
you know, effectively what he would otherwise do day visually, but, uh, you know, as flying as a number two, but that number two has its own sort of line on a, on a, on a map. It's a separate route, um, which is, this is where the navigators sort of have sort of, uh, you know, headaches as they sort of try and put their plans together to make sure that, so basically you would fly this, you know, usual, as you say, sort of perhaps two miles apart, something like that, um, with uh, just flying separate tracks like that. And we could do that, you know, night or INC. And in fact, you know, now, if we do it in peacetime, we would do that sort of day, uh, well, we do, could do it night or day VNC, but of course you could see the other guy, which is all fine. At nighttime, you can see his lights, uh, and that was all fine. Uh, we could do also, and then we went to Goose Bay, for example, training. We would do that IMC, you know, in cloud, because the weather in Canada was often like that. And you're often not, you know, that's where you couldn't see the other airplane as you're flying around at, you know, 500 feet on the TFR. You might occasionally sort of see him as you drop down to a valley, and look across, and there he is over there, and then you sort of pop back up into the lab again and lose him again, and we just sort of carry on like that. And it's very much very sort of disciplined thing. It must be you have to be on your track, and in particular, there's very hard rules about um, uh, timing, basically, is that if you are not, you know, on track, on time, on speed, and, you know, probably like plus, plus or minus five seconds, then you, you have to get out of it because you are therefore becoming a, an issue for not necessarily for the guy behind, you know, to the left of you, but for guys behind you, because then we would have right. another pair coming, you know, 30 seconds behind. And that's how we were flying on our first operational missions in the Gulf. So you know? you, so you've mentioned it. Um, you, you mentioned TFR. Um, just explain for those that might not know what TFR yeah. is. Yes. So this is the, the terrain following radar system, which had been fitted to the, um, it was the same system as fitted to the F-111. Has been, so it's a real 1970s sort of technology, but actually a remarkably, remarkably good piece of kit. Um, is a forward-looking radar, basically, which the aim of which was to um, allow the aircraft to fly um, beyond an autopilot or, or manually um, and, uh, and just avoid the ground. It would look ahead about seven miles or so, and it could just detect um, clearly the ground sort of coming up and therefore would command the, uh, the, the autopilot system to, you know, for, for the aircraft to therefore climb over the top of any terrain. And then when it cleared that terrain, it would then drop it down over the other side. Um, and and remark and it's, it's sort of a major part of tornado training, perhaps early days even was 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 actually getting confidence in this because a lot of people suck, suck their teeth when they hear this, uh, and actually sort of realised we were doing this at you know peacetime sort of 500 feet, but you know for real as we did, it went down to 200 feet. That's as low as the, the switch would take you, oh. um, which is as we know it's pretty pretty close to the ground. You know to be sitting there on the in, uh, on autopilot as we, we would tend to do um, with a, with a you know with George flying it for you but it's actually a remarkably reliable system it, it could be trusted um, so, so it, you called so you called it george that was the, the nickname. well we didn't actually yeah. i mean i would say that from a that was a sort of classic world war ii autopilot word wasn't it for right, george. Yeah, so yeah, yeah but I'm, yeah. you know i'm saying but no it, for, for actually you know for nighttime operations we would fly with the autopilot in which sounds a bit alien to fast jet pilots but but we would and there's quite a good reason because that it was so so good but of course that meant it would follow all the correct, all the part, all the commands correctly. So if it's terrain coming, it would fly. Whereas if, it, of course, you were flying manually and you're a bit distracted and not looking where you're going because you can't because it's night time and you didn't have night vision goggles, you would fly into the ground. So you tend to fly an autopilot um, unless there's a good reason not to, like dropping weapons, in fact, and then the autopilot would go back in again. But perhaps we'll come on to that a bit later. Well, yeah. Okay, so yeah. Nick, so. The so the, there you are in the in the week coming up through the or maybe it's the week before the 15th you know you are sounds like you're so you're practicing low level stuff whether it be yeah. lofting thousand pounders um yeah. whether it's dropping uh high drag thousand pounders or whether it's uh jp233 did you know though 
that was the sort of target that you were going to be put up against, the sort of airfield targets? Or was there a point in the in the planning where, you know, a bit like the curtain goes back and they say Dresden tonight, that that you were read into exactly what the plan was? Yeah, it was more like that, in fairness, uh, in that we weren't, you know, when it came to planning, when I turned up for sort of, you know, the first night, um, as, as I did on the first wave, you know, I turned up for work, you know, we know the deadline's gone by, but we still don't know if it's going all happening tonight. And yet it is, we are, you know, given maps that night to say, chaps, here's your target for tonight. It's Talil Airfield. Uh, and that's the first we sort of, the first we knew of it, because it all been planned by, again, those, those QYs again, it all got together and drawn the maps and all this sort of stuff. And they just basically, you know, gave them to it, which is, you know, which is fine. You know, we, we, we knew what we we're doing and it was just... Excited know. or... Do you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach? Uh, I, I, oh, yeah. I, I was not excited at all. <laughs> Quite the reverse. I, I, I know. I, I don't know. Perhaps I was, I don't know, if I've been fatalistic. I mean, it wasn't a big surprise, in fairness. So when it turned out and said, well, it is starting tonight. Well, all right. That 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 doesn't come as a big surprise. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. I'm, I'm not quite sure how I sort of felt. But certainly probably scared more than anything, I think. You know, and yeah, thinking, yeah. oh, my God. So, I can't. I can't believe I'm mixed up with this now. This, and, uh, this is because I think it's going to be quite a big. It's going to be quite a big deal. I think. Yeah. And had you had you had intelligence briefs leading up to that in terms of the order of battle in Iraq? Did you know Talil as a heavily defended airfield with a lot of capability there at all? No, in fact, I didn't know anything about anything about specific targets in Iraq at all. I might say. You know, we knew all about. Yeah, we knew their air force and we knew their defences and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of actual places we might go to we hadn't done any of that which is probably quite a possibly a bit of a failing i don't know but then again need to know and all this sort of stuff you know they've been knew about it before and you know air crew they, they you know if we got if we knew too much and then got captured you know what we're like we get you know it takes 10 seconds before you know, we start talking doesn't it really you know? <laughs> <laughs> Five so, yeah, they, they bring the comfy chair in and that's <laughs> <laughs> the sharpened guava half <laughs> 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 I mean, that is a really good point about the, the secrecy side of things, which is why I asked the question, you know, yeah. you know curtain goes back and, uh, and you know, whether it's uh, whether it's Dresden. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine the the way you all looked at each other on that evening when you walk in and go, this is it, boys. And yeah, I'll hand over to Parky in a sec. But the I, I retweeted something. It, it was uh, I think it was John Nickel had, had tweeted it, but there's a. Yeah. a Twitter site called the, uh, the Opstream, I think it is, which puts together animated, you know, little aeroplanes on a map of various uh, yeah. uh, efforts, campaigns, and things uh, you know, uh, uh, across history since we've been flying. And they put together um, night one, January the 15th uh, yeah. in 91. And when you look at the, you know, there's multiple carriers in the, uh, in the Red Sea, in the Gulf, um, B-52s coming from the U.S., uh, um, T-LAMs, um, cruise missiles coming off multiple ships in around yeah. the areas, uh, 117s off into Baghdad, you know, and it's really interesting to me that there you are, you turn up to work, here's your target, and you, no idea, realistically, that any of this stuff is going on around you or has been being planned for weeks and months. Yeah, and, and that's, yeah, and I suppose even then I don't recall being briefed very much on you know, what else is going to sort of make a bit of a guess, you know, but yeah, there's probably a lot else going on. And of course, you, you know, you might see that on a, on a screen or a board or something. You might think, wow, the sky looks full. And of course you fly your own little trip. You don't see any of that. 
you just yeah. you just fly right in a little bit of sky albeit we were the only people stupid enough to be down at 200 feet but you know <laughs> everyone else is messing around far more sensible place and but but no it, you know it's all and everyone else's lights off so you don't see a thing you know you hear people on the radio but you know how it is you just really don't see el- any anybody else um in fact i i, I do re- you know recall for, not just the first night, but you know, several nights. Well, certainly nighttime in particular. When I'm there, you know, we turned off all the lights, we crossed the border, and that's it. I can't see anyone else in the formation now. I'm at the front anyway, with you know my leader there. But that's it. And I kind of thought I feel quite lonely here. I, I, you know, I've got I've got a back seat, but I can't really see him. You know, and I'm just sat here by myself. And did you talk uh, to him at all? <laughs> yes, I was. Yes, yeah. There's, Only there's if you had of, to. There's a lot of chat. We've got sort of, we had this sort of commentary went back and forth with this TFR stuff, you know, because he's got he he, got the, the, he had the sort of longer range radar, so he could sort of see the ground a bit further, and we would talk ourselves down to any terrain coming out. So, so there's a lot of chat going on, of course, you know. But uh, but I remember sitting there thinking, I, I do feel quite lonely here. <laughs> My little pink body here. So so Nick, um, you know, you, you you that first night, you you brief up, you, you step, you walk for your jet. I guess it's it's night to that stage. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's slightly surreal. This is it. You're off. And, yeah. And, and there you go. I mean, I imagine just, you know, adrenaline, nerves, everything you've just mentioned. But did it, was it, you know, you, you, I guess you, you've got a tank. It's a long, you know, just for the nerves to keep building and building. And then you're, you're into that run. You descend down and, and mm. it's, it's happening. You, you mm. are now going to go through this airfield. Just, mm. just, just chat me through. Is it still vivid, the memories of that? Yeah. Yes, and I've spoken to one of the other guys recently. I think, and all of us say, there's not a day goes by when we don't think about it, really. None of us, I think. We all think about it every day, about, you know, how it went and everything. But anyway, so there we are. Um, I mean, I, let me just sort of take you through, because one or two sort of little surreal things happen on that first night, you know, because it, it is, we realised it was, you know, it was going to be probably the biggest thing since, I don't know, possibly the Second World War, I guess, in terms of a single package of, you know. So so we thought, this is this is a big deal. So... So we walk to the jets pretty early, as you do on a tornado, because there's always glitches and things like that. So we jump in, and as Nick, it was, sorry, Nick, yeah, go on. sorry to interrupt. Yes. But can you just before you you go into that, what were you actually dropping on that first night? So yeah, so we were attacking this airfield called Talil, which was uh, uh, an Iraqi fighter base in the uh, in the southern part of, of Iraq. Um, uh, two very long, two sort of ten thousand foot parallel runways, about the size of Heathrow. You know, it's so. And our job was is going to be an eight ship of tornadoes. Um, each of which is carrying um, two of these JP233 weapons. Um, so each JP, two, so each pair of JP233, so each tornado is carrying 60 of these runway cratering um, charges. That, they're the things that they sort of came down on the parachute. Um, and and then also we were all scattering 400 of these little sort of uh, little mines, these little baked bean tin sized mines. And so that was the idea. The idea was to sort of discourage clearing up afterwards um and, and the J- so this jp333 sort of parachute charge had um it had two charges in the first I- the idea was that the first charge blows it into the ground and then the second charge goes off pretty well instantaneously to then sort of heave heave up runway concrete from from, from below so so we get that sort of effect you know as you'll know if you, if you drop a thousand pound onto a runway it creates a hole but you just fill in the hole and it's a runway again so the idea of this jp233 was this sort of double charge so our idea, so that was the idea. That was the, that's what the our thing that which therefore meant we were going to go through over this airfield at 200 feet um, to to drop this um, to drop this weapon. So that was all briefed and you know and and like I say, it was going to be an eight ship, so two two of our two four ships together. Um, yes. So, so, so sorry, Nick. Yeah. Just on just yeah. on the 
JP233. Was that the first time you dropped one? And the reason I ask that is, I don't understand how else you would drop it, because you can't, like you pointed out before, in peacetime, you couldn't really clean it up, because it was just anti-personnel mines. Yep. Nope, it's the first time for all of us. Um, yep, so there was no way. We, we, we'd have practice. We had it in the simulator. We had, the, our simulator in those days was a very basic thing. So we could practice it in the simulator, and we'd get this sort of little rumbling effect, um, you know, as, as these. Because it took about... Um, uh, about five six seconds for all the all the bomblets to come off, um, and then in fact the canisters at the end would automatically fall off as well. So the big thump, three thump, four thumps at the end as they would come off as well. So that thing take about five six seconds altogether. But no, we, we hadn't practiced for real. But it's the advantage we didn't really have to. We, we were um, well, it would have been nice, but there's absolutely no way we could do that because it's just too dangerous a weapon to do that, as you as you rightly point out. Um, so uh, so there we. I mean, so I sort of you know we went out to the jet very early, probably about an hour before takeoff. Um, and as it was, I think we climbed in the jet and got it going, and jet was fine. So then we had about, you know, I had about three quarters of an hour. Just we just sat there, you know, waiting to go, and it, was, it was a, felt like a long time. You know, oh my goodness me, what what now? You know, and it's like, anyway, there's nothing else. Um, anyway, and we take off, and and then okay, and off we go. And I don't fit my backseat on it. We got airborne, and just said to me, "Well, Nick, we're off." <laughs> you know, I said, yeah, I guess we are, aren't we? You know, so anyway, so we met up with the tankers and. Um, we, we had again. We were going to have uh, the route. If you, uh, difficult, if you sort of think of the, you know, where Bahrain is, the, the we could have gone straight up the Gulf, but I think we didn't. We didn't like that. That sort of quite a sort of hot territory, uh, Basra and Shida, those sort of places. We didn't like that. So, so we met up with tankers and then went up to the northwest in Saudi airspace um, for a good hour and a half or so to then sort of let down into Iraq along that southern border with Saudi Arabia, which is much much quieter. So, so therefore we had quite a long time sitting with the tankers, and uh, so that's it. We we. we our front four ship, uh, we met up with the tankers, or I can't remember the Victors or VC-10s, and, uh, and, and just sitting there, it was about two o'clock in the morning, because the idea was that we were attacking about four in the morning, i.e. just before it gets light, um, and then we'd be landing at six in the morning, some minutes, but it's daylight again. The idea being is that we then shut down the airfield for the sort of daytime hours, because uh, we knew they weren't going to fly very much at night. So so that's the idea. So it's nighttime, met up with the tankers, and we, there we are, so cruising along. Um, it's it's not easy, the JP-3 is very heavy, and it? It was actually we were actually a bit slightly above max takeoff weight on with with the big tanks fitted and things like that. We about half a ton of max takeoff weight, which we'd spotted some months before. And British Aerospace said, "Oh, it'll be all right. Don't worry about it." <laughs> so, so we pressed. Well, that's fine. That was mainly the, the, the twenty-two fifty-liter tanks had been brought in because we wanted we needed the fuel, and we were very well. We don't care. We need the fuel. So yeah, we, we don't. Anyway. So so anyway, off we go. So the jet was was really heavy and it was very hard work tanking. It was uh, mushing around and pretty hard work. And anyway, but as I say, we settled down. I took some, we took some fuel and filled up and carried on down route for a bit. And then we, we've got a, an HF radio on the on the tornado, which we couldn't transmit on, would you believe, because it affected the controls. It was ridiculous, but <laughs> but we could listen. We could listen and we could listen to the world service of, of all things. So there we are, my backseater tuned into the world service, BBC world service. You know, we thought, sort of thinking, well, I bet they've got something going on here. And there's nothing going on. And the world service sort of got that. I don't, I forget what the program was, but it's something very benign. It was like, you know, gardening question time or something. And, and, and we're sat here, you know, I'm thinking, this is incredible. I'm, I'm sat here. I'm about to start a war with a lot of other people. And I'm listening to this on the radio. And it's, 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 <laughs> that's a surreal. Anyway, it, it didn't last very long before all of a sudden it was, you know, oh, oh, we interrupt this program to go to the newsroom. And, and, you know, and then they start reporting of explosions in Baghdad, which, you know, as you, as you say, you know, cruise missiles were starting to hit and things like that, you know. So we thought, oh, right, the, the game is on. So, um, 
I don't suppose anyway. you remember any of the news stories prior to dro- prior to the breaking news, do you? Say again, sorry. I don't suppose you remember any of the news stories prior to the breaking news. Oh, oh, no, I don't. No, no, no. Too, I, but it was just something, you know. I, I don't know what they said, but uh, you know, it was it was good. At which point we turned the world service off. We, thought, <laughs> no, we, don't, we don't need that anymore. <laughs> but then after that, I mean, I sort of thought about these little moments of of, of, of them having, you know, we then sort of uh, took some more fuel, joined, you know, took, fired a bit of fuel, then left the tankers. I mean, sort of set ourselves up to let down to low level. And we're probably sort of, I don't know, 40-odd miles south of the Iraqi border at this point. And then we sort of start heading northwards and letting down to low level in our separate sort of, this is where we set up this parallel track bit. So we had to get ourselves on time and everything. So we do that. And then, um, as you know, uh, you know uh, GR1 had a big moving map display, you know, uh, be- between the knees. And, and I remember then, once we settled down to low level, um, and, um, and then I see, you know, the, the border is shown on, on the moving map there. And it's... You know, I always remember just seeing on sort of one side it says Saudi Arabia, on the other side it says Iraq. And, I, you know, as I cross that border um, and it ran, that's it, 420 knots, 200 feet on the TFR, I've got four and a half tons of bombs, I've got two sidewinder missiles, I've got two Mauser cannon all armed up. This is this is offensive. They, they can do what they like. They can shoot back at me any time now because this is clearly an offensive act. And I just thought, bloody hell, this is this is getting very serious now. I think it's, uh, I think it's time to call all this off, really. <laughs> so, uh, um, but that was it. But it was, and that was it. It was, dead, it was actually dead quiet. In fact, it, it was you know, there's nothing going on down there. We could start to see explosions and stuff going on in the distance, you know. So, but, but we had our quite a little bit of desert there, so that was all quite nice. And that was all. But and then it was about sort of only about sort of fifteen probably 15 minutes or 15, 20 minutes or so to the airfield, to, to the target. So not too long. Um, and that's when it sort of, you know, then things started happening is that, um, and the jet's flying on these sort of, this, I say this fixed route and these fixed turning points. Uh, and I sort of recall then as sort of we're getting, you know, we know we get close to the target area. Uh, it's, it's very clear night. And, and I see this towards the sort of, you know, 1030 position off on the left. I sort of look to the left and see this massive area of AAA of anti-aircraft fire coming up. And it's, it's at night time, it is just, and it was so intense and, and, you know, flashing up and the speed of it and everything. You think, bloody hell. I looked at that and thought, holy, look at that. I wouldn't, you know, I, wouldn't, I wonder what that is. I wouldn't want to go into that. Well, just then the jet gets to a turning point. The light is on autopilot and it turns left and points right at it. And, <laughs> and it suddenly becomes clear. Holy shit, that's where I'm going, isn't it? Of <laughs> and this is the airfield. I've got a bit of the old nighttime sort of distance compression bit of sort of a, and it was closed, and, uh, and that was it. And I thought, oh, my God. And, of course, and, and it's not surprising they were shooting because they had been visited by those very same B-52s and F-117s and F-111s that we'd all, you know, had, except they'd all gone in there first, as, as required. And we were, we were going in last, um, the reason being because we had these mines. And, it, you know, we didn't, we didn't want people coming after us because they'd set off our mine, which, oh, of course, didn't really want. So we were last in. So, therefore, the defences were up and running big time. So um, they you really were... lucked in there, Nick. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was great. Deal. great, great. So they yeah. poked yeah. the hornet's nest and then in you went. Absolutely. And, and I, they... you know, I say this, and of course, there are never any pictures of this. So I, I, I sort of, you know, I have to describe it. But, you know, the intensity of, of all this triple at night time, when we knew this thing, you know, we all know, you know ZSU 23-4s and S60s and things like that, all pumping out, you know, very high velocity and it's extraordinary high velocity, not you know, uh, stuff out there. And it just—I sort of do this thing with my fingers and sort of say it looked like a sort of mesh of, of AAA. And I, and I just looked at it and I thought, 
I'm a dead man. I'm not, I'm not going to, there's, there's no way through that. That looks just like a complete, you know, complete unmissable bunch of, of high velocity stuff. And, and, and that was it. And now, and there we go. So, so we're running into time. Wow. The, the Did event, anyone turn round at that point? Well, now there's a good question. And that was it. And, and at this, you know, and I was come back to this and, and on that, I know not on that night, everybody, certainly on our eight ship, everybody just went through it. Everybody just did it. And I come, it comes back to that, that sort of military thing that any of you guys who don't, you would have done, I, I have no doubt you would have done it as well. Because first and foremost, you don't want to be the one who cocks up, who, who's, you know, who says, I can't do it. You, if all those years of training, you would have done just the same. I, I sort of content, you know, say that to anybody who, who's been in the military for a few years, you, you would have just done it. Um, because And I did. I just didn't think at all of, I cannot possibly do that. Uh, I just got to get my did, head down and go and go through it. Did anyone say anything over the radio? Did you talk into cockpit no. of a uh, of a? Oh God! <laughs> well, actually, I mean, between, there was absolutely complete radio silence amongst the. You know, there's nobody talking. We didn't have to. So there's no talk between aircraft, um, front and back. You know, again, I'm not quite sure what. I, I don't. I think we've just seen a bit of a stunned, terrified silence. Really, um, obviously, the back seat of. Rob Woods is there. He, he was sitting at the back. I mean, he's got a little bit of distraction. He's head down, sort of looking at his radar and um, and doing his stuff on that. And all he had to do, in fact, was because we were bombing in what's sort of offset mode. All he had to do was find the the, the corner of a fence. It, it basically, these massive airfields that they had massive uh, big fences around them, which put a beautiful ninety degree corner, which is fantastically radar significant. So the backseat, all he had to do was find that, and then we would. We'd already planned, you know, the bombing. The bombs would drop in the right place then, um, uh, in a so in offset mode. So he was sort of, I think, happy to be looking at something else. Whereas all I was looking at was looking more at a straight ahead thing. Bloody hell, this is uh, this is not good. Really, I don't mean, so know. There was nothing there saying, uh, Rob, whatever you do, do not look up. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it was just impossible not to see it because it was just it was it was just astonishing, and it seemed to. And I remember sort of seeing to, when we finally sort of went into it, you know, I, I thought, and 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 I still haven't quite worked out how, how it happened because, you know, I seemed to be in it for so long, long long before I was actually over the airfield perimeter. I seemed to be in this AAA. Um, and, and and it's, you know, it's quite bizarre how I remember seeing guns open up as I literally was going past them and just, you know, just literally opening up. Just And I think that guy's probably about 80 yards away from me, you know, and I was just... And I'm sat in, and a complete, and of course, and I can't hear anything. You just sat there in this warm cockpit, warm, quiet cockpit. Um, there must be utter the noise on the airfield itself must be, must be incredible, you know. Um, and the only thing I, I you know, at a, sorry, I did notice that fortunately was that, was that uh, there was nothing showing at all on the radar warning receiver. I was going to ask that about so, Sam's. Yeah. Yes. So so now of course oh, because radar so we we have got. We have got uh, anti-radar missile shooters. We've got Wild Weasel, you know, the, the probably F-4s, I think, or F-16s, you know, with the anti-radar missiles who, who are, you know, hovering around. They're, they're with our package, so they're sort of waiting to shoot. We've got EF-111 Ravens who are doing their jamming thing and things like that. So so we had support, and I think I think the word is out, and the Iraqis were very cautious about that, so therefore they just kept the radars off and just hosed away with the guns. Ah, so this is going to be one of my questions. Yeah. In fact, I, I raised it last week, which was... You know, when you watch these videos, for instance, of naval ships and they've got the goalkeeper system or the phalanx systems whizzing about, and I'm thinking, like, how on earth can you fly over an airfield if they've got anything of that equivalence? But what they were doing is turning off the radar so they wouldn't get hit by... Yeah. They were effectively blind-firing at you. 
They, they were just hosing away. And because, it, you know, it's nighttime, we are completely lights out. They cannot see us at all. Uh, so, so we've got that on, on our side. Um, we were coming in from all sorts of different, well, I say all sorts of different angles. We were, there was this perception that we were, the JP233, we'd have to run down the runway mm. to do that. Well, we weren't doing that. We did it a different way. We came across at different angles to keep us there far less predictable um, in, in, in terms of, you know, where they put their guns. So, um, so and that the idea was that we could cross, cut taxiways and things like that, and, and also cut runways as well. So, um, so that was the idea. Um, so we had two broad attack directions, basically, to, 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 to um, um, but yes, and as it, interestingly enough, they had, they did have some defenses, because a few nights later, um, uh, Dave Waddington, who you, you might, you know, Dave Waddington, Robbie Stewart, were shot down at Talil by a Roland missile. Um, so clearly they, they sort of, you know, a few days later, they decided, right, this time we're not going to do that. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll try and take a shot. And they were successful. Um, but that night, they didn't, you know, they didn't turn the thing off, which is one good thing in our favour. Wow. So, uh, you know, we've, we've already uh, discussed and you've told us about the terrain following radar uh, and the fact that the lowest it goes is 200 feet. Um, and we've already said that you operationally low fly at 100 feet. But... Yeah. Um, so I've got a couple of questions about the terrain following radar, because as I understand it, um, it had a, a number of different modes. So you had different rides, and so you had hard ride, and, and you know, I, I can't remember what the other yes. nomenclature was. But yeah. with that, is that what you were going in on? Was it, uh, so was it a pretty rough ride, even though your hands off at the time? Was yeah. the jet, you know, pitching quite significantly to remain at that 200 feet? Um, not particularly, you're right, there was hard, medium and soft ride, but between them, from what I recall, there wasn't a vast amount of difference. I mean, you know, flying flying in a hard ride was, well, I might say probably a bit like flying with a QI. <laughs> <laughs> have, have you flown? Have you flown with Dunk? <laughs> um, no, it was, it, the, the, the system couldn't cope, you know, so it, it was still a fairly smooth reacting, whatever. So, so it was, we were flying in hard ride, but uh, actually, when it comes to weapon release, then we had to then had to disconnect the autopilot because it, it, there were such big central gravity changes then with the with all the bombs coming off um, that they had to disconnect the autopilot, which is, uh, and then just hold it straight level over the airfield. Um, well, this was my next be... question because did you because the the JP two three three had to be released at a very specific height, didn't it? Well, the rest, the optimum height was one hundred eighty feet. Um, the minimum height, it seems to recall, is one hundred sixty five feet. For, to be honest, for Nick Hurd, who's scared out of his wits, uh, disconnected the autopilot at 200 feet and doing a very gentle climb, if anything, was perfectly good for me. And that's exactly what I did. So, we, like I said, we were at 200 feet or so. I disconnected the autopilot with a few seconds to go because you had your head-up display symbology. Just as we approached, you know, uh, we, we could, um, you would commit the attack as you'd be, you know, so you put your finger on the button. Uh, I mean, both front and back, made sure we both had our fingers on the commit buttons as hard as we possibly could to make sure we didn't, you know, forget to drop the bonds, which of course is a bit embarrassing after having come all that way. Um, <laughs> and then, um, uh, and then the bonds will start uh, releasing. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And, and then it was, like I say, it was, it was relatively easy. To, again, stable aeroplane, it would hold it quite nicely. Uh, and and I just sort of held it. We had a flight, you know, we had a head-up display with a flight path vector, so we knew exactly how to keep it absolutely spot on level. And, and my view at all these trips, of course, was, you know, do not fly into the ground. Very simple. You know, ground, PK of one, probability of kill of one. If you fly into the ground, you're dead. So my view was very much of nothing as dangerous as just flying into the ground. So... 200 feet is fine, and I just probably had a half a degree climb going as these bombs are coming off, um, and, and that was going to be, as far as I was concerned, perfectly good. And then, and as apart, soon as the, from, apart from the tracer, were, were there any lights on the airfield? Did you have any visual cues at all, apart from your head-up display on an artificial horizon? Uh, no, absolutely nothing. No, the, 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 you know, the, the, there were no lights on the airfield. It was just all that was, all the only light was was the AAA. Yeah. Um, so we're fairly confident it was an airfield there. Mm. <laughs> We've got that was AAA, and we, we knew it was we knew it was spot on target. Um, but um, uh, although interesting enough, one mission I think on that first night from one of the Tibet missions actually came. Their first air, the airfield they went to was had no idea what was happening, and they were it was lit up, and the, the runway lights were on, and there's aircraft in the circuit, I think something like that, and they actually attacked it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely bizarre, you know. So I think that was one of the Tibet missions had that. Almost doesn't feel uh, but, sporting, does it? Not the case in Talil. Um And that was it. And then, you know, so, and yeah, so. And then <laughs> so we, you uh, imagine so the guy in the circuit, downwind touch and go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, right, what, yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, all the big thumps as the canisters eventually come off. Yeah. Um, and then does it all stop? You know, you're out of the Star Wars Canyon and the shooting stopped. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I was very quick to. I then put the autopilot back in again. I trusted the autopilot more than myself, so so I put the autopilot back in again pretty sharply. Um, the jet is four and a half tons lighter, so really, you know, wow. now we finally get going because, um, you know, we were attacking about four eighty knots or so. We would have liked to have gone faster, but it just wouldn't go any faster. And of course, you imagine at night time, what we couldn't really do is use a reheat because, of course, that would light you up like a beacon. So, so we had to accept that four eighty about as far as we could go. But as soon as the bombs are off, that's it. We're, you know, it's far better. And we sort of egressed at 510, 540 knots, something like that. Um, and that was it. And then straight back into, into the sort of pitch black again. So um, on, it was sort of quite bizarre. On the attack, and I'm not even sure you can answer this, but nevertheless, yeah. this airfield has already been brutalized by B-52s. And, oh, yeah. oh, you know, you're, you're the last guys in. So yeah. was the height at which you were flying in at do you think that was beneficial to 
avoiding the AAA? Do you think they were arranged for something else? Good question. I, and I think you're right. I think they were because, you know, I, and I learned this a couple of nights later when I saw some very different, I felt as though I saw some very different AAA. Uh, but this, you know, I realised was essentially aiming sort of straight up. It was sort of straight up or a bit of an angle, something like that. But it wasn't orientated towards low flying aircraft. Um, it didn't, I didn't, I didn't sort of feel any better because of that because it still looked really dangerous. <laughs> um, but it, but I think, you're, yes, it was sort of just hosing straight up and hopefully they'll hit something. And so they weren't, I mean, they weren't expecting probably any low flying traffic at all. Um, and um, so, so, yeah, well, like I say, it made a difference to me. It's still bloody terrifying. But, uh, you know, um, and that's it. Popped out the other side. Um, so, I, I, so you back out the other side. Yeah. Do you remember enormously elevated heart rate? Do you remember <laughs> excitement? Um, you know, that, that sort of rush of adrenaline once something like that has happened? Yeah. Um, well, well, yeah. Th- th- I think one of the interesting, you know, then sort of quite soon after, and then you start thinking, has everyone got through? And I was on the front pair and there were sort of six other jets to come through behind me, which is going to take only a couple of minutes because they're all fairly close, closely packed in. So, um, so then I think the thought was, you know, and then sort of, let's be careful here. Let's not fly into the ground now. Make sure we're all sorted out and heading away. Okay, that's all okay. Um, and it's probably a little early. You know, he's definitely very, still very pumped up at this point, you know, and, and God knows what the heart, heart rate was up to. But um, And then probably the next thing was, and we did have a then sort of, as we wanted, a sort of a radio check-in. But the first time we'd all used the radio was, was just to check in, and and you know, all eight all eight checked in, which of course is brilliant. And that was that was superb actually. And then of course when we got back, we thought, oh bloody hell, we just we've all got through that. Look at that. Well, and it's funny all... you talk you talking about it, Nick. I want to cheer at the point where number yeah, eight, exactly. you know, checks yeah. in. But, yeah. You know, you'd imagine when they're doing the movie, there's a slight pause, eight, yes. and everyone in each cockpit <laughs> has got their yeah, fists yeah. up. I'm, I'm sure we must. Have, I'm sure we did. We hit one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Hey, yeah, oh, you know, <laughs> get in. It's deleted, deleted, you know, but but yeah, it's and and um, and that was it. And then you know, and then the egress was, you know, just like it was going in. It was just all dark and nothing to really talk about, and that's it. Got back to the border, climbed up, met the tankers. How was the tanking? Well, tanking was absolutely, you know, I got so used to tanking, right? You know, and I was just, in fact, it was getting daylight by then. So, and it was the first daylight tank. I was in that first first daylight tank in the ages. Really, <laughs> so it was easy. Night. It was easy. I thought, oh, I forgot how easy this was in daytime. <laughs> I think there's uh, when you're uh, you're often doing ops like that. There's there's also quite a, a camaraderie. Um, I bet the tankers were really pleased to see you as well. Uh, did you get any yeah. reception or any idea of, uh, of, of of them being pleased to see you guys? It's it's difficult really because it was it was all kind of non-radio. You know, as you do, yeah. you, you didn't need the radio, so they just they were there. It was, you know. It's great to see them there, of course. You a know, special and... sign from the Lodi out the window. Well, yeah. <laughs> or it's a victor. You, you can't see anything, anyone in a victor. Oh, okay, you know? so, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we couldn't really express our thanks. So we just all quietly, professionally got on with it and, you know, pressed yeah. on home, you know. But um, um, and, and that was that. And then, of course, we came back, the sun comes up and then it gets light and, and we go back to um, we go back to Bahrain. And, uh, you know... And in fact, the strange thing was there. I, I finished up, although I was at the front, for this front pair, my my <laughs> then had an oil pressure caption on one engine, um, and uh, so I stayed with him. He, we sort of came. He, he didn't have to divert anywhere. He was going to bring it home. But it meant we came home sort of sl- more slower, slower than the other six. So the other six landed ahead of us, and they had the TV crews all over them, 
Um, and we weren't expecting this either. Hopeless was, uh, was, uh, <laughs> was hopeless as a sort of PR in those days. And we landed, there were TV crews all over the place. And, and then that, the video dunk that you know, I showed you, the, you know, that, that, uh, you know the, the TVAM video, where a lot of the people who were interviewed were, you know, all the, that was that mission on that we'd just come back from. But I, because we landed about 10 minutes, 15 minutes behind everyone else, they'd all gone home by then, really. I mean, sort of, <laughs> So yeah, sort that's of probably a good that. thing. I didn't get any picture. I'm just like, story, really. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, and then the surreal bit comes back because then we land and sort of debrief and do the 700, all this sort of stuff, and go back to the hotel. I bet, there was, uh, I bet there was. Bet there was. Uh, was there a sense of elation? What was yeah, the? Oh. You know, where you were all, you know, yeah. signing in the jets and that Did sort you of go stuff. Go for a beer. Well, well, it was, well, we went. You know, we went to debrief. You know, the debrief was, you know, just big and noisy and just, you know, we were, yeah, we were. I think we were just so pleased that first mission had gone so well, as, as Rupert Clark put it. And on that, on a, on a you know, did, on, as, as Rupert would, he, he put it ran on rails. It really did run on rails. It was a brilliant trip, you know. Uh, bit in the middle was, but everything else went as it should have done. It was a really good start, and we were just dead chuffed that we'd got everyone back in particular, and, and we'd all done it. We'd all bombed on on track, you know, on time, and, and everything. It was, it, it was really good, you know. We thought, oh, piece of old, you know, piece of old ease. And did you get um, a BDA, a battle damage assessment? Uh, did you get any of that? Did you see? Yeah. Were, were they successful attacks? Yeah, it took, took a yeah, it took a few days before we started getting BDA BDA reports. You know, and they started uh, we started getting some pictures. In fact, I mean, later on in the war, because we then moved to the daytime phase, we could start. <laughs> my Paxita took his camera with him, and well, you know, I've got a bunch of shots. I'll I'll bring him in sometime. I, uh, and and we, we could. I mean, for example, Talil, we get we fly past Talil all the time in the end, and and we could take our own pictures and we could see our own. I, I you know I could see my my own sort of so-called line in the sand uh, that my that my JPs had done, you know, and um, which is just quite sorry, quite I, good to see. I thought you meant battle damage assessment on your yes. own, on your own jets then. Oh, I see. No, no. Oh, well. Uh, no. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. Did you have? Were there any holes in any of the aeroplanes? I think so. I mean, I, I'm not recalling anybody getting hit in. In, in, well, not not to the point of being able to bring a jet back. Clearly, people got hit and didn't come home, sort of thing. You know, there might have been one jet from Tabuk, I think, might have got hit by something. But basically, I think we all learned the lesson really, really quickly, as you learn lessons quickly in war, I think, that the AAA, the, the anti-aircraft fire, looks bad, but it's there's clearly a lot of daylight in between. <laughs> you know, because if that, you know, it looked, eight of us have just got through there, then as long as you don't fly to the ground, you know, don't get too distracted by it, you should be okay. So it's one, you know, I think we all learned that that first night. Sort of big sky theory. Absolutely. And it, it, yeah. as much as it looked a bit compressed, it, it's actually probably not as compressed at all. And it just, you know, so just be careful. To the, but, uh, when, I yeah. saw some picture, some pictures on the, you know, the coverage on Twitter that's been going on um, of some tornadoes with great big holes in, it looks like, they, it looks like they were in flaps or, or slats or, you know, some... Well, okay. Or, so yeah. I, I think some did take some rounds. Okay, yeah. Well, it, well, it could well be. And I, I'd never, or it didn't. I don't think it happened in Bahrain, but it might have happened elsewhere. Um, I think our view was generally, if you get hit by something, you know, that's probably going to be pretty catastrophic. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I suppose some of these shells could go through without if they haven't fused or something. You know, perhaps they might just go through without exploding. Which, who knows? If it's that low, it's obviously there's a certain, presumably a certain fusing time or arming time with the shell. I don't know, but. Anyway, but as far as I'm, I didn't get hit by anything, I'm glad to say. And how did, because uh, you, you've already mentioned you then went from, so how many night JP233 missions did you do? Well, so I did three of them. Okay. Because um, we spent the first, 
four or five days doing this because it was the classic counter air thing, you know, is attack, attack their air force so that they can't fly. And that's, you know, that's the whole role of us on the tornado and JP 233. So, so I did, I did, so I went back the following night. Um, and just on that, on that, on that, Nick, yeah. knowing what lay ahead of you now, yeah. was it worse or was it easier? Well, it's funny. Yeah. I, I kind of, you know, cause I went, you know, as we go back to, went back to the hotel, you know, as I said, and, I mean, that was a bit bizarre that first, first morning, you know, so go back to the hotel, buffet breakfast is on. So <laughs> I, no, there's, there's no hotel guests other than military. So it's not as though it's, it's not Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so from Skegness visiting, right? You know, it's, it's our hotel. So, Strange enough, so we got to go to bed now, but well, I'll go have some breakfast. So I'm going to have some breakfast. And, and would you believe, I, I, there was some, I think, supply officer came down, and for some reason, he, he'd missed everything. He hadn't turned the TV on. He came down and sat with me. Oh, morning, Nick. Yeah, how are you? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, anything going on? <laughs> it, it started, mate. You're going to get the news on. It's, has it? Yes. <laughs> Just back from our first mission. <laughs> oh Christ! Okay, all right, bizarre. So, um, but then I mean, yeah, I mean, sort of went up to the room, and I mean, we were, uh, we were, we were taking tamazepam, you know, uh, yeah. sleeping tablets, which I found bloody marvellous. I really slept well with tamazepam, and and I take this on the previous, well, previous few nights, and I took a couple more that night or that morning, and fell straight asleep. I was, I was kind of just fine, um, which was just bizarre, really. I thought I might struggle, but. I struggle now these days, I think, but those, I don't know. I just went back to sleep. Did so, you have a breakfast beer? I don't think I did, actually. I think I went, I didn't, I didn't do a beer. Wash I, the I, tamazepam down with <laughs> a breakfast beer. Dunk has a breakfast beer every day, don't you? You swear by it. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I might sort of just finish up, I mean, that first night, just from a sort of side, sort of funny story then, of, of, of my wife getting, at the time I was going to be married back, just over about a year and a half or so. We didn't have any kids. Um, so my wife was working, she was working as a, as a civilian nurse in the Lara Medical Centre at the time. Um, now, of course, it was January time, and it, normally in Germany, there was the RF Germany Ski Championships that went on down in uh, Val d'Isere. Now, this year, or that, that year, there were not many blokes around because kind of most people were down in the Gulf. So they, they decided, well, well, we'll carry on doing this, but we'll, we'll drag some of the wives in. So my wife finishes up going down to Val d'Isere. For the ski championship, which starts a few days before the Gulf War starts. Anyway, so so I can't really be in touch with her very well. I mean, it's clearly a different. There's no internet anywhere or anything like that. Clearly, so come the morning of the uh, of the Gulf, I've gone back to bed and I've gone back to sleep. She's down in Val d'Isere, and she's up with the first, you know, waiting for the first ski lift. Having she hasn't heard anything what's been going on, and um, but she's standing in the queue for the for the ski lift. And she, start, she hears people sort of talking about French people, talking a little bit animatedly about la guerre dans la gulf. And, and, and she said, oh, OK. So she wanders down, finds a phone box, um, puts some money in and calls me directly in the hotel in Bahrain. So so here we are. We've just gone back to sleep and, and the phone rings, which you don't really want. Actually, Rob picks it up and, oh, it's Jane. So, so I hand over the phone. She says, you know, hi, uh, what's going on? So... So there we are. I sort of explained to her, well, yeah, it's kind of started. We've just done our first trip, and yeah, it went very well, and can't say much else, really. But... You don't think what you, the supplier, no one knows what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. yeah so it's just... Anyway, so that's quite amusing, that sort of phone call. Oh, how's skiing? Then it's the snow, all right? You know, oh, yeah, good job. Well, best to go back to bed now. You know, best to go in and put the phone down and go back to sleep. But, you know, strange, funny business. What? But um... The ski championships in Val d'Isere, 
is possibly the most Paul Godfrey event that I've ever heard. Yeah, you've got, you've... I'll have you know, JB, I've only ever been on one ski championships in my life, and that was in 1992. Why? Were you in Bermuda or something? I haven't been on one since. Wow. Did I... you nearly drink yourself to death? Is that why? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, what, what, so, so, um, oh, we're all laughing. You yeah, well, we just, just, uh, it was really just uh, uh, Nick just talking about what, um, God has said, was it more scary the second time? Well, knowing what was out there? It's interesting. I, I sort of came away with, like I say, with a certain amount of confidence, shall we say, you know, thinking, okay, I can do this. I'm a, I'm a warrior now. I can do it. Um, and that was all very well until I went back to work on the second evening when by then we'd lost two jets. Oh. Uh, the, the two Johns had been shot down. They're of my squadron. We didn't know what had happened to them. We didn't know. And, and then, in fact, well, okay, we'd only lost one jet by the time I went to work that evening. It was about, probably about 6 or 7 p.m., um, I, whilst we were then setting up for this for that trip that night, um, I wandered out because the, there was a, uh, another mission just returning um, at about probably at six or seven p.m. They were just coming back, and I wandered out to meet, meet the jet, just say hi, how did it go? And, and that's when and they'd lost um, they'd lost the jet as well. That's when uh, uh, OC Bill Boss of Twenty Seven Squadron, uh, Nigel Elston and, and Max Collier uh, had, had crashed just off target. Um, and, you know, I mean, knew they were dead, you know, so, so, and, and all of a sudden, you know, having for 24 hours previous or the early that morning, I thought, this is okay. And all of a sudden we lost two jets. And you think, yes, this is, I forget, you know, this, or don't forget, this is, uh, this is serious. So, so then I got quite worried again then thought, oh, bloody hell, perhaps we were just very lucky on that first night and now we're going to get hacked to pieces tonight. Yeah. And so, what had happened yeah. with OC27? Had he done what you desperately tried not to? Had yeah. We've just flown into the ground or were they shot down? No, we, the, the, the feeling was from the guys who talked about it was that they, they did their trip. I can't remember. They were, they were, they basically went straight up the Gulf as, as one sort of said, and then they crossed into Iraq that way. And they overland, they said they were being shot at all the way for, for whatever, I can't remember they were, where they were attacking. They dropped their weapons, and it was only off-target, and apparently actually a fairly quiet bit all of a sudden. And then they saw this crash, which clearly an aircraft just crashing into the into the ground, you know, that sort of long sort of flame. Um, and, and the feeling was that he probably had just flown into the ground. There were, there were no, didn't see any defences there right now. I mean, I don't know if there was any, any proof in that. Um, and, and this... Um, Actually, let's not. I won't. I won't go into perhaps. The, uh, there might be sensitivities here, which I perhaps won't go into on on on, on this on this um, forum as to, as to the position that that why that OT twenty seven might might and why that might have happened to him. But uh, um, but um, yeah, sadly, you know, we we think that's probably what what was the case. Um, so yeah, so all of a sudden we lost two jets, and uh, it's 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 pretty damn serious. So um, you'd gone in at seven. So just, uh, and I'm I'm ignorant to this. So apologies for that. But yeah. and the two Johns had gone in. Were there day missions going? At the same time, so were those yes. boys going in the day, and you were on the you were in the night? So it wasn't just tornadoes are doing night JP two three three. The squadrons were also doing day missions as well. Yes, well, the only mission that went really was was the two Johns mission. That was the only one that went. Now, interesting, they came to work. I remember on that first night when I was just we were just walking to the jets for our for the first mission, and they turned up then to sort of do their planning. So they would be on the ground for a few hours, but they were flying, um, you know, about they were taking off about six in the morning for a daytime entirely daytime trip and they were doing um they were doing lofting lofting a loft attacks with thousand pounders um we, we knew that jp 23 u was just we, we couldn't do that in in daytime we'd just be sitting ducks you know that'd be no good at all yeah. so they were doing lofting of um of thousand pounders 
And then that, that mission, and then I think that was a bit of a, and that was it. But then I think then the next missions were these early evening missions then of the, of the second night. And this, this 27 squad mission came out with, you know, with, with one, one guy down. So, so like I said, we, my four ship or our eight ship, we were sort of stuck, we were on this sort of routine of taking off about two in the morning and getting back at six in the morning, which I was quite happy with really. Yeah, I think uh, probably most people just because of the, uh, as you've said at night, no one can see you. You do feel a little less vulnerable, don't you? Absolutely, yes, yes. I mean, so the, 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 of course, we had Jaguars at Bahrain as well. We got the Jaguars, and they did a damn good job throughout. And they they seem to have the tactics right for daytime because they started up at high level, high level of Jaguar anyway, probably fifteen thousand or so, or and they would sort of go around those sort of heights and then sort of dive down to attack and then pull up again. Mm. And for some reason, the tornado we didn't seem to really consider that until a bit later in the war. Oh, so where, when when was that switch then? So you know, having run through a bunch of these missions, yeah. Um, how how far into it was the? Hang on, we're losing too many aircraft here. We need to switch to medium level. Well, it was essentially at the end of the first week. Let's say five six days into it, something like that. Um, you know, because we did lose kind of four jets that first week, um, and, um, and and yes, and, and if you the, the Iraqi air force were were not flying, you know, well, there was a bit of flying went up, but they quickly stopped flying. Um, and so, therefore, we didn't need to keep, you know, doing these hairy missions against their airfields because they just weren't going to fly. So, they, so they buggered off to Iran, didn't they? Well, there was a lot of that went on. Yes, they, they a lot of scuttled off over there, um, and the rest just just tucked away in their houses and just sort of in their hardened aircraft shelters and, and left them to it there, basically. Yeah, and they buried um, some, I think. Uh, that, yeah, that turned out after the war. I think they, they found some buried ones or something like that. Yeah, yes, they might have put them in the hardened aircraft shelters, but most of those got trashed later in the war anyway, with laser-guided bombs, of course, which became our sort of job later in the year, so, later during the war. Can I just ask about the change of priorities from low-level to medium? Um, was, that, was that because of losses of jets, or was that because, well, basically, job done? Well, it's, it's kind of both, really, I, I would say. I, I, would, I would imagine the losses were, you know, because, you know, that's a pretty hefty, hefty loss rate, really. We were sort of kind of losing... You know, it was almost one a night, and and we all knew each other as well. There's that aspect. You know, there's none of us didn't know each other, so so it was. Uh, I mean, all right, and some guys survived, and all this, which was although that we didn't find out until perhaps a little bit later in proceedings. Um, but no, it, it's probably more tactically. We didn't need to do it again. Um, so so it was happy enough to sort of shift things up to this, um, you know, climate uh, bombing. You know, just doing our stuff from twenty thousand feet, different. Weapons and and things like that. I mean, having said, moved up to twenty thousand, I was actually being a little bit scared again then, because I thought, well, hang on, I've spent all these years of flying around low level, think that's where the place to be, and now they shoved me up at twenty thousand feet. I mean, now in the heart of envelopes, of all sorts of missiles around, and say threes and sixes and things like that, and here I am, sort of floating around in the sky. And so, I actually felt a little bit uncomfortable at, at medium levels to, to start with. When, um, did, when did you start teaming up with 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 Buccaneers? Then was that one of your roles? Yeah. So that happened. So we did a couple of weeks of this sort of night attacks, and that became a bit of a sort of. We went back to Talil and one or two airfields where we just drop. We could drop eight thousand pounders onto the airfield, not not particular, not aiming terribly specifically on the airfield, but just somewhere on the airfield, just to sort of wreck their day. You know, it just makes a mess. So we did that for a for a, for a whatever a couple of weeks or so, something like that. Um, and that, that was everything settled down. We, although, interesting, one of the losses we had, actually, not from us, but from Dharan, uh, they lost a jet. Um, this was um, um, uh, Bob Ankerson was the navigator, and the pilot was Simon uh, Burgess, Budgie Burgess. Um, and they brought themselves down with some big 
cock up with um, with the, the new multifunction bomb fuse that was being used. And due to some uh, arming cock up, they uh, they released their bombs, their thousand pound bombs from you know twenty odd thousand feet. Um, and the bombs have been incorrectly armed. Uh, you know, arming a bomb is when it's you, you know there's a certain time frame when you when it leaves the aircraft before it arms and they're ready to go bang. Now, if you're dropping a bomb from 20,000 feet, the arming time could be a long time because it's not going to hit the ground for 30 seconds. For some reason, there's a bit of a cock-up, and they'd set the arming time to one second. So unfortunately, these bombs were released, and one second later, they were armed and didn't take much for one of them to go off. And one of them did, and then several went off, and it wow. kind of brought the aircraft down. So they, in fact, we nearly lost two jets that night, in fact, because one aircraft, yeah, they got brought down. Um, and ejected and got captured, and uh, another aircraft got pretty badly damaged um, and came home. Good, you know, but uh, so a bit of a bit of a cock up. Um, anyway, so but that, essentially things settled out a bit then. Really, we stopped taking the losses then, and, uh, and 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 it was you know it was fine. So we did that for a couple of weeks, and then and then it became clear that um, precision guidance of weapons was required, um, and that's when the Buccaneers got brought in. At very short notice. I've been told for weeks and months that they were not going to be involved. And again, in a classic military way, I think they were sort of told, oh my God, you know, go to the Middle East. You should have been there yesterday, sort of thing. And, and they they hurried down to the Middle East, did a very, very good job of a very short bit of in, in theatre training. And then and that's it. Then we shifted for the second half of the war to the sort of daytime bit of um of sort of because actually we couldn't uh we couldn't do our own guiding of bombs from the tornado. Yeah. Were they using the Were they using the tiled pod, or no, was they, it a, the pave tack yes. or whatever it was? Yes, they were using it. That was pave tack, wasn't it? That's what they. The, the tiled pod was starting to come into service actually on the tornado. So we, we started getting a few missions using tiled pods, um, but essentially all my trips were done with the Buccaneer doing the spiking, which is which is a bizarre sort of uh, situation. This Buccaneer, thirty four, you know, thirty five year old jet comes in to support the, you know, the new. <laughs> The new bomber, sort of thing, because it can't manage it on its own. Um, so, but they did. I, I was, I would took my hat off the Buccaneer boys. They did a really good job of turning up and going straight into theatre and, and and doing their stuff. Um, it's funny. As soon, as soon as you say Buccaneer, I just have this mental picture of that the because they were they weren't as pink as the desert colour you were flying. I don't. I'm not sure. <laughs> I guess not. But the one with the uh, the sort of Johnny Roger. On the side, oh, yes. you know, I yeah, think yeah. it's probably one of the uh, iconic yeah, yeah. photos from back then. W were they based with you in Bahrain, the ones that yeah, were? Yeah, they were, I see. Yes, I think I'm not sure. Yes, I think they're exclusive as in Bahrain, so which is fine for us. We could liaise with them very easily there, but I think they were also doing trips with the guys from Dharan, which mean they were, you know, you mentioned the communications difficulties of bearing in mind there's all these fancy calls that go on and bananas and this, that, and the other, and they have to because the laser and the laser guiding stuff, you know, the timing had to be just right because they couldn't, you know, when you drop a laser guided bomb. You couldn't. They couldn't turn on the laser straight away. There had to be a certain timing to allow the bomb to sort of fall its proper traje trajectory, and then they would start lasing. So there's a certain amount of uh, calls, and so they knew when the bomb is in there, in the air, and wait for it, then start lasing. And so pretty complex stuff. Um, and uh, but again, they, you know, the first first mission I did with LGBs was to head for a, a, a bridge in the middle of on the you know somewhere in the Tigris, and, and you know. Uh, and I'd never dropped an LGB in my life. It was no big deal for us on the toilet. All we had to do was drop the bombs in the basket, as it's known as, you know, in the sort of basket where the laser would work, which a tornado did very well. That's all we had, you know. So I just turned up, you know, when you treated one, boof, 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 three laser guided bombs go. And then we just carry on flying and 30, 30 odd seconds later, drop a wing. And sure enough, all these, there's a big explosion on this bridge. And uh, just, 
yeah, as we all sort of see pictures of that sort of thing. And, and I was gobsmacked, never seen that before. Yeah, look at that. It's incredible. It, 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 it's something I meant to uh, to mention earlier, but um, you know, clearly you mentioned prior to internet, but prior to GPS as well. You know, there was no global navigation system here, so nope. everything that you guys were doing was kit updates and what's termed the Coleman filter on the uh, um, on the navigation kit you know you talked about the off the radar offset with the fence in order to update the kit you know because you because the kit will drift um in terms yeah. of the inertial navigation system and even this you know um you're navigating at this point aren't you to try and find well the i guess the navigator in the buccaneer is the one that's searching to try and find the bridge um you're getting to a release point um that again isn't updated by anything else other than kit that your navigators are updating uh, absolutely right. Yes, I mean, I, I mean, and at least at the tornado, we had it was it wasn't bad nav kit at all. Actually, it did a pretty decent job. Um, but the Buccaneer guys, yeah, I don't think they had anything. They, they, and I was gobsmacked. And of course, the, the the navigator in the back of the Buccaneer, his screen, it was a classic sort of it's it, it's a sort of you know it's down by his right elbow or something, and it's you know the lever works the wrong direction or something. It's completely <laughs> non-intuitive, you know. And, and for them to to acquire the target, I was gobsmacked at how they managed it. I mean, we, we had to go from a, we, we definitely sort of talked about the first missions were so-called, you know, O-level standard, we said, you know, and then we moved up to A-level, then we moved to sort of degree level, depending on the sort of, and by the end of it, you know, a week or two later, we were doing, you know, we were going to airfields and we could, we were doing things like working away around has sites, you know, and specifically in a certain sequence, they go for that, that has and that has, and, and, and which is obviously more complex than just a single you know, a single bridge. Um, but uh, but no, I said I thought the Buccaneers were, were, were pretty damn awesome. If, uh, it was always slightly embarrassing when we came back, when we always came off target. Tornadoes typically sort of go about 20 or 1,000 feet with, with bombs on. But when we got the bombs off, we'd go about 25 or so and go back to the tanker and then come home again. Well, the Buccaneers would come with us and the bombs, we dropped our bombs. The Buccaneer would go straight to 40,000 feet and go straight home. <laughs> just awesome they'd be they'd be home half an hour before us you know just because just they could they had the power and the internal bomber you know what get it brilliant so very, very impressive i've got two questions uh, for you on that so say again sorry i've got two questions for you on that okay so okay. first question would be a very simple one like i take it your four ships became six ships did they or did it was it five aircraft um effectively yes we, we effectively worked sort of two two tornadoes with a with a buccaneer all right yeah. okay and yeah. the second one is why didn't you just get the Buccaneers to drop the bombs? Uh, they started doing that as well. They, they did, in fact. And there's a there's a very good bit of film out there, uh, which I, I saw on YouTube the other day. Reminded, I think I was on the same mission actually, where this Buccaneer, who if they when when, when we'd finished, we dropped our bomb, we go home. If the Buccaneer had a couple of bombs, they could look around and and add a bit to it. And there's this, uh, I think it's a um, what is it? A Russian twin a cub, I think. Is it anyway? It's Russian. Uh, sitting on a on a on a on an airfield somewhere, and they spot it, and they and they bomb it, and they blow the damn thing to pieces. It's 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 out there on YouTube, and um, and, and the, the, the commentary on that is bloody marvellous. They, they really are pleased with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so why were, were all not... the bucks based up at Lossiemouth at that point? They were. Yeah. Or was it yeah. uh, two hundred eight and twelve squadron? Yeah. And yeah, what... I guess they were two, weren't they? And yeah. What were they yeah. up to before that? Were they anti-shipping or? Yes. Yeah, that was the main sort of role. Yeah, yeah. Well, they had this laser of a rhubarb, isn't it? They go out and find yes. targets of opportunity. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they were they were they were bloody good actually. I was, that was a uh, very impressive. And of course, a year or two later, it went out of service, and that was that. But they it was a very good finish with the Buccaneer, I think. Um, yeah. And were you? Um, and so at this point, 
when are we talking? Are we into February, you know, the sort of yeah. mid to end of February then? Because yeah. when did the air war go on to? Um, March, well, wasn't it? Or was no, it? Well, I mean, the, whole, the war finished on the 28th of February. 28th, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I mean, we talk about this daytime bit. I got scared again, then, you see. After being two, two weeks at night, but then I got daytime, and I think, bloody hell. Now, not only am I at medium level, which I don't like, I'm in daytime as well. Now they can see me again. Uh, did, you get any, did, did anything lock you up in terms of well, uh, RWRs? Yeah. Well, and in fact, well, um, not particularly. And in fact, probably by this stage, you know, I say I was a bit scared, but probably by this stage, we were getting perhaps a little complacent. And it came back to bite us um, on the uh, on the 14th of February. I'll, 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 I know the date because it was, it was Valentine's Day. And we were tasked against um, to go against uh, Habania Airfield, which is a bit west of Baghdad by about 30-odd miles. And this, and we were going to be working, this was going to be working away around the house site, bombs on each, through each house, something like that. So uh, eight tornadoes, four buccaneers, and um, and attacking at sort of dawn, um, early early mornings. So, and so that was quite a long way up. That was a long way up into Iraq, you know. So, okay, all right. So off we went. Um, all, all went fine to start. But, um, and we started attacking. Now, in that case, we our foreship was a sort of the rear foreship. Um, so I was going to be number six uh, for that trip of going through target. Um, anyway, we started going through and, you know, bombs started dropping. We went through number six. Our bombs went. We seemed to splash pretty well on, on, on the targets. And then we sort of peeled off to the north and to sort of, you know, for the route home. Um, but a couple of minutes later, then, so then we sort of think, OK, so number seven should be going through about now. And then number eight was going through. Number eight was Rupert Clark and Steve Hicks. Uh, it may know Rupert. Um, anyway, so and and at some point the now and this is the final buccaneer who is looking at the target uh, sees two missile launches and calls it on the radio. You know he calls uh, you know missile launch missile launch because he sees them physically come off the rails. Um, so now we're not too far away and we're not sure what the missiles are, but clearly we start looking and maneuvering and trying to see what what's going on. We again we have nothing on the radar warning receiver at this point. So, uh, but clearly we're, we're looking to see, see what's, what's, what's out there because we're not, as a, we're not too far away. Anyway, I can't quite remember the sequence of events eventually, but event, event, there's a sort of call on the radio that something someone says, you know, looks like someone's been hit. And we do then start to see the smoke trail um, of a jet clearly over the target area. And yes, it started to go down. Now, it didn't go down very, it's, it's interesting, it goes down at quite a relatively shallow angle, about a 10 degree dive, something like that. It doesn't sort of just fall out of the sky so and, and we start watching it basically then to see what you know we don't know if it's a tornado or a bucket hit at this point um but again a quick radio check reveals that it's, it's number eight rupert and, and steve hicks so we uh and that's it and then we we kind of then just sat we, we were some distance we, we were able to sort of watch it all the way then um as it went down we were keeping our eyes out in case any, any other missiles are out there but there was nothing no other warnings but um and we watched this smoke trail. Now, this is quite some distance, probably about eight, ten miles away. So, but of course, we were watching it, hoping to see a couple of seats come out. Um, but as it was, we didn't see anything, and we watched it all the way down to uh, down to impact. You know, we saw the explosions hit the ground, and we thought, ah, you know, I think they've had it. Anyway, and we pressed on home, and that was that. You know, we went home and uh, in in some in some uh, you know fairly quietly, shall we say, and uh, and got back. Um, and that was it. So, so look. So, what we think that we think it was a pair of uh, SA threes got launched um, out there, and, and we think the guy who launched them knew what he was doing because he didn't 
he fired them sort of optically to start with, so no radar on at all, um, and then probably just put on his, you know, missile, uh, uh, his, you know, guidance, probably just the last few seconds. So he was, you know, there's no way any harm shooter was going to get in, um, and he just sort of, you know, and it and it just got um, Rupert and Hicksy now. Have you heard Rupert's story? Anyone sort of? Yeah, I, I have. I had a while ago, actually. But okay. um, so remind me, you know, from, so from his perspective, what happened in the aeroplane? Well, they'd had they'd just been in a position of dropping their bombs and they had one one bomb had hung up, which is a little unfortunate. You know, these things, you know, so, so they were actually trying hard to get rid of this one, this sort of final bomb. And I think they didn't really do anything in the way of about anything about the missile. Um, and in fact, really, they, they didn't manoeuvre at all. And both these missiles just kind of went off outside the aeroplane and you'll know you know an SA3 is a big missile with a big warhead and and it killed it killed Steve Hicks immediately he, he was instantly killed by the missile Rupert I think is an astonishingly lucky guy um because there's you know all sorts of high velocity ball bearings flying around and he survived didn't seem to get touched um but the aircraft was clearly sort of you know uh, completely uh, wrecked and and he had no control of it and it just you know came down and I think he eventually ejected about 5,000 feet or so, something like that and of course, it's command eject, so he pulled the handle, so the back seat went anyway. Um, and uh, so they did eject, and we just clearly couldn't see it from where we were, which yeah, doesn't surprise me. Um, and that's that. And I think he tells the story as he says, you know, because um, you know he comes down and gets captured pretty quickly. But he gets, I think, about half an hour later from after bombing this airfield, he's back in the base commander's office of this airfield at Habania, having a cup of tea with him. And this base commander was. You know, speaking to him in his very good English about and telling him all the training he'd done with the RAF, you know, his few years ago when he'd been over in, in UK. You know, it's a very, very bizarre sort of situation for a little while. The tea and biscuits didn't last for poor Rodrigo, no. though, and then they? that's right. Then the heavy guys turned up and took him off to the Baghdad Hilton and uh, and uh, he had a few weeks there. Um, yeah. and, by this, and by this time in the war, I can't remember when when it happened but um you know when did the johns appear on tv so you know all of these people <laughs> where you'd seen Watto, um you know yeah. that hadn't come back you didn't know whether they were alive no. or not um no. when, when, when did they appear and when did what you get the inkling that there might there might be some survivors out there well it's about three or four days i suppose into after they've been shot down they, they appeared that's when they appeared on tv okay so it was quite quickly it was quite quick so at least we knew i mean i i, I mean i <laughs> A lot of the guys, oh, look, fantastic, they're alive. And I looked at it and I thought, hmm, they don't look in very good shape. I have to say, I'm not quite sure what's going on with it. But, yes, entirely right. At least we were happy that we could see they were alive. Um, but there's no word of anybody else. We didn't know of any, you know, there was no, that's it. We didn't know about anybody else, alive, dead, no idea. So the only time that we that we sort of realised who was alive and who was dead ultimately came, I mean, leave it ahead a bit now, after the war ended, you know, we then sort of sat for a while, over a few days and wondered what was going to happen. Um, and then it became clear that POWs were going to get released. Um, and then we came up with this plan of uh, a sort of buddy-buddy system for whoever was missing um, was going to have somebody to go meet them at Riyadh because they, they were going to get a flight, a Red Cross flight from Baghdad to Riyadh where they get released. So the idea was that we, we wanted them to have a sort of a friendly face that they could see and what we knew was going to be a real sort of media melee. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So I got sprung from Bahrain to go meet up with Rupert, because I did, in fact, Rupert and myself and Charlie Brown had all joined the same IoT. So we all knew, yeah. Anyway, so um, so that's it. We flew over to over to uh, Riyadh, all of us, you know, um, all the buddies, 
and, we, and this Red Cross flight turns up and we're all standing in the crowd and our job is just to watch out for whoever steps out and go and grab them. So there was somebody there for Dave Waddington, Robbie Stewart and Rupert Lark and Steve Hicks and all this sort of stuff. So Rupert, you know, when I see Rupert come out of the out of this aeroplane, I fight my way through the scrum and sort of, you know, go grab Rupert, Rupert, you know, oh, Nick. <laughs> and I grab him and, and sort of walk this way um, and and that's it. And, and we basically the deal was we take them and shuttle them over to this RFVC 10, which is waiting and ready to go. And when everyone was off the Baghdad, you know, this flight, we closed the doors and we uh, shot off to Cyprus and went to Akrotiri. And how was he? Um, uh, what was his reaction to see you? Well, I'm probably a bit bewildered, I think. You know, he, look, they're all, none of them are sort of terribly good shape. They're all pretty malnourished and being a bit beaten up and all this other stuff. So he, he didn't sort of express, I can't remember this, look at his face, but, you know, I feel pretty pretty pleased, I think, but perhaps a bit bewildered. Um, anyway, the main thing was we all got on this VC-10, and it wasn't just us, it was the SAS guys as well who'd been, you know, they'd been, uh, some of them been captured. They had the same deal going on. Um and that's it. Um, and sadly, that's where we realised that, you know, you know, the people, sorry, excuse me, who weren't uh, coming back. We knew that Steve Hicks wasn't in there. Kev Weeks and uh, Gary Lennox were the other guys who, you know, weren't on there. So, so their buddies didn't meet anybody. They went back to where they where they went. But we, like I say, we then shot off to Akutiri, um, where obviously there's a hospital there, and, and they could get the POW sort of some some medical treatment. And we just. Actually, it was a really lovely, uh, it was the nicest. I mean, I didn't get to Rakuteri that many times in my Air Force career, but that was the nicest time because it was just now early March in Akuteri, springtime, just survived the war. And it was it was very pleasant. We had a very pleasant few days of, uh, of R&R, really, just getting uh, back into uh, back to normal. So, but Parky, were you in Akuteri at that point? Yeah. Is Parky still there? I yes. am. I am. We've had a. By the way, you had a power cut here, so I'm sitting mm-hmm. in the dark. Bizarre. Um, <laughs> what about but, uh, yeah, uh, I'm. I might just check my logbook and find out if I was still in Cyprus. I think we may well have been. I do. You know, I remember the boys all coming back through. Um, where, where were you? Nick? Were you just sort of, you know, literally in the mess? You know. No, and, they, uh, they they put us in the hotel as well, actually, which I thought was. A, I don't know why, but they did. They just left us in. It just kept us all together. So we were just just staying in the hotel, which is fine. But we still came up to the, we did have at least one, after a couple of nights, we did sort of decide that, because we thought the, the POWs were getting a little bit too much of the medics and the psychiatrists or all sort of stuff. And they might, they might need a bit of uh, a proper rehabilitation. So we sprung them all, took a bowl up to the bar, and uh, we got going on the Brandy Sours. And it <laughs> nice. Was brilliant. It was, it was bloody good, actually. And in fact, one, one or two didn't last very long. They went, but... but John Nickel and people like that, they, they, they stuck it out, all right? <laughs> Good man. Did, um, so did you end up going back to Bahrain after that? Or was no. that for you that Zavor was over? That's it. Well, uh, yes. And, and then, um, and that's it. And then we had, and a few days later, they, they, we got another VC-10, which uh, took all the, all the Germany crews back, basically. So we all got this VC-10. We flew to Bruggen, dropped off the Bruggen cruise, hopped over to Larbrook. I had a very pleasant, got back on a very pleasant Sunday afternoon back in Germany and nice, everyone, all the families waiting for us and um, all the families waiting. And it was a very, it was a lovely, very nice reception back at, back at base. It was lovely, as Barbara always was, but just a really nice sort of uh, meeting up again. Of, uh, I mean, yeah, a bit sad. Well, yeah, because three guys didn't come back from Larbrook. Well, yeah, <laughs> I know. It, it, but um, yeah, I but, but the rest of us, it was, it was lovely. It was just great to get back, you know. 
as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, definitely bittersweet, I guess. And and yeah. uh, you know, for you, how was the you know how was meeting your wife uh, again and and you know and that sort of thing? Was it strange to be back? <laughs> All of it, you know. No. I've just come back from six months away. Um, yeah, I wasn't doing anything nearly as uh, as courageous uh, as you, but. Um, you know, it is always strange coming back after a long time away. Um, when you've been doing other stuff, you've been in the military environment. You know, that mm. must have been a, a, a hell of a, a reunion and, and a reintegration into normal society. Yeah, I think it was, I don't know. I, I didn't sort of recall any particular uh, wake up screaming in the night or anything. You know, it's quite a, it's probably different, you know. I mean, I, what, something I always thought about afterwards was the fact that um, at the time, I said I'd be married a year and a half, no kids, and that was a, that was the position we were in. Now, my backseater, a um, little bit older than me, three or four years older than me, had two two sort of kids of eight and ten, something like that. And it's it's only afterwards, after I had my own kids, I realised I thought to myself, what must it have been like um, in you know to be flying this if you've got children at home, um, and in particular as a navigator, you know when you've got no control of your life whatsoever. You know, in the backseat of a strike tornado, you, there's no stick. You've got no. If the guy flies you into the ground, you, you, you know, it, I don't know. I mean, we all say, well, should have worked harder at flying training, shouldn't you, and all that sort of stuff. You know, but it was. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Perhaps at the time, I, I become sort of quite, uh, I don't know, hardened or something like that. But I quickly shook that off as I got home again and thought, here we are back in Germany, and it was beautiful, beautiful springtime, and it was just nice to get back to my favourite bar, you know, and with everyone there and. Let's go and drink is all stupid, and, and it was just great. I didn't have a problem with that. <laughs> Brilliant. It, it's funny you should mention that. You know, I, I was uh, had a conversation with a guy just the other day, and um, you know, having been childless in the nineties, uh, you know, doing the Bosnia thing and that sort of stuff, oh, yeah. not a care, not a care in the world, bulletproof. Yeah. Um, Iraq in two thousand and one, um, no, two thousand, uh, coming up to two thousand three, two thousand two, two thousand three, and I had mm. a a two year old at that point. Genuinely, completely different kettle of fish. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I felt completely different at that particular point. Like mm. I say, you know, one for the psychologist and one for a, a later date. But interesting, you mentioned that as well. Do you know what? Yeah. It, um, interestingly, on same on same topic, they say exactly the same thing about F one drivers. F one drivers with kids, they don't last particularly long. Uh, they don't yeah. win. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I, I certainly felt that way very much. So, you know, only subsequently realizing it that. That was the that was the case. So I'm not saying I was being suicidal during the Gulf War or anything like that, but at, at the same time I was thinking, well, you know, we were newly married, but if my wife is all very young, if I don't come back, I was quite well insured actually. In fact, I started to get a little bit concerned about it. Probably too well insured. Bringing up Sadan, he's having a he's having a boys out. So uh, anyway. So um, Nick, I've only just got yeah. I've only got one last question for you, and then I'll open it up to yeah. the lads for for um, any more. But the thing which kind of amazed me about the tornado force is that you didn't take more losses. I, I kind of think of what you were asked to do has probably been one of the more dangerous things, if not the most dangerous thing, which is attack very heavily airspace, uh, very heavily guarded air, uh, airspace, very, very, very low level. So after it's all been said and done, how did you rate the performance of the tor- 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 tornado force? Did, was it was it was it adequate? Or did you did you change the way that you the way that you did, did did things? What did you learn? Well, I, I think for the job we were asked to do, I thought we did it very well. Um, to, you know, they, they, we were stuck with this weapon. JP-23 requires an aeroplane to be put over the top of an airfield at 200 feet. And, you know, the tornado does that perfectly. They did it then. 
you drop the bombs within 10 feet where they need to be, and that's brilliant. It's just, it's just not a very good place to be. So, um, so I thought, I thought we did a, a really good job. As I say, nobody, as far as I'm aware, sort of pulled out or anything like that. Everybody really just gritted their teeth and did it. So there's a fantastic sort of force uh, camaraderie there um, that that you know was was um, was really good. Um, we, we, you know, yes, the Iraqis, if they had, for example, I mentioned this fact about turning on their radars a bit more, then they could have hacked us out of something if a bit more cleverer people with knew who knew what they were doing with uh, with their radars, probably just opening up for a few seconds, take a shot, shut down again, so they wouldn't be vulnerable to anti-radar missiles, and then we would have lost more because we were, you know, as, as the guys know, as, as something like a ZSU-23, a big four four-barreled Russian gun, been around for many years, was a very capable weapon against low-flying aircraft and we were you know not that fast and not that low shall we say we weren't maneuvering very hard so we could have been quite vulnerable soon so you know we could have lost more if they if they'd done that or indeed you know the guys you know, who shot down Dave Waddington at Tilly a few nights after me you know who had more Rolands and they could have might have done more um but um but you know then we you know we changed our tactics now you know and 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 in fairness, I would say since that first week of the Gulf War, low flying has just never really been part of, you know, it's, it's sort of obviously disappeared from from the Air Force's priorities uh, as each year passes, which probably rightly so. There, there's, there is much less requirement to, to sort of low fly anymore. So instead of all this low flying we used to do and very little else, it's completely the other way, which probably makes us more capable because dropping weapons from high levels, be it dumb weapons or precision, whatever, it is very different to dropping at, at low level and um, so, um, so I, I think we did a, a, a decent job. I mean, tactically, I think by this week, this first week of JP reviews, we probably didn't have to do that. I suspect we could have done something different, but nobody complained because that's kind of what yeah, we did I at the time. We were sort of pretty, pretty comfortable with the idea and thought, well, okay, this is what we do, so we'll go do it. But I guess you weren't to know it wasn't needed to be done. I think with hindsight, it's no. easy to say, yeah, we didn't need to do that because they didn't fly, but you know, it did need to be done. Yeah, yeah, but we probably could have done it. We might have been out to it. The JP, you know, a few missions of tornadoes uh, compared to the the massive American presence, you know, was, I'm not saying it was a token. It wasn't a token gesture by any means, but, you know, if we'd just been dropping 1,000 pounders from 20,000 feet on those airfields, I think the war would have been won just as well. <laughs> yes, I see. Uh, I so we didn't that. really need to do this low-level stuff, but, um, but... But, but like I say, we that's we were all comfortable enough doing it. Um, and uh, I, I said, yeah. one or two losses were. I, I mean, I don't want to sort of hesitate to sort of start talking about the two Johns, but you know, they, they were, uh, you know, there, there were issues on on their mission which caused them to be, uh, you know, there was a like cock up in, you know, they didn't get their bombs off, and which is, you know, a little unfortunate sort of a um, switchery issue. But you know, it's it's a I don't take it. It's, a, it's your, your first war mission. It's a, is a, is a big day out, you know. You, you might make a mistake or two. So, and okay, so they got shot down, and and you know, a couple of guys did fly into the ground, as far as you know. So, and that's all part. It comes out to my sort of brutal, slightly brutal view of you know, if we thought somebody just flown into the ground, I sort of sit back and think again, brutally think, well, I'm not going to do that. I know I'm not going to do that, so I'm not going to worry about that. Um, so that was my sort of mental thing going on there. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, from a from an RAF perspective, it was, I mean, it was so huge at the time. I remember finishing at IOT. When did we 
finish. It was around the May time, wasn't it? Um, you, you I, I, oh, yeah, I did. Don't go back for a little more. Oh, um, no. he, oh. he, he definitely knew that, Dunk, when he said that. Dunk <laughs> oh, yeah. stayed on for advanced courses? Or what happened? I had a smile halfway through that Dunk will have noticed. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I remember going to the Milden Hall Air Show after that, mm. or in and around that sort of period. And all the desert aeroplanes there, the yeah, yeah. You know, a bunch of you guys up, and um, you know autographs like you read about, and again pre-internet, but getting stories face to face. Then I did the I mentioned this last week. I did the Combat Survival Rescue Officers course where yeah. John Peters gave a, yeah. a, a a chat there because we wanted to hear about what it was like on the ground. And I'd said last week. I mean, as you know, he's very good at that, uh, 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 how he tells the story. Rupert's the same. Um, yeah. Both yeah. of them are on this. And um, you, you could hear a pin drop of all yeah. of the everyone yeah. around the room wondering what it would have been like had I been in their shoes. Yeah. Or if I'd have been in your shoes, you know, looking at that wall of lead on night one. You know, yeah. I mentioned before, I've seen little puffs of AAA during the day. It didn't look scary <laughs> to me in yeah, the yeah. But a wall of lead that you guys are heading to unbelievable and, I, and yeah. it from a definitely jb you mentioned the tornado force but uh, you know i guess you guys were after that but nick mentioned it very soon after that the f4 went the buccaneer went um lots of different airplanes disappeared and the tornado force were still there and had that legacy of performing as well as they did in that first gulf war and subsequently to then and i, I think you know yeah. the fact that every tornado crew got from that first gulf war and still got all the way through to the end when they were operating in Afghan afghanistan and iraq um right to when they shut down last year the year before yeah that. yeah yeah nick and the team set the bar right then yeah. well well i think as well the other thing i mean i'm sure you remember this as well Goddard's, but that tvam video um that uh that you, everyone can see on youtube should you uh, should you wish to go there um they showed it i remember a sat in whittle hall which was effectively the big lecture hall at cranwell um and they showed that video were you there as well Goddard's? do you remember that i must have been but there's a lot of things i don't remember they, and they uh, that to me was um inspirational stuff you know that those the journalists had put um it was all of the jets taking off from bahrain um the big carrots coming out of the uh, the, the back of the jet on in reheat as they mm. they go they go off and, and i remember having that feeling of you know i i want to bit stupidly probably by the sounds of things talking to you but i want to be there that's what i want to do you know that was inspirational stuff just to, to someone that had just joined the air force to to hopefully become a, a fast jet pilot and um you know so um i, I thought it was uh, astounding to see and it was a you know clearly all of the the media coverage that's been going on recently and rightly so because it was a huge deal for the raf and Parky, I mean, genuine question. The, I mean, you guys were doing a job. We didn't know how far scuds were going to be shot. We didn't know, you know, any aircraft that were going to fly out to Cyprus. You've got to have all of these defences in place. You know, certainly I, I was in charge a few years ago of the defence of Cyprus when uh, when we first went into um, uh, into Syria. Um, what was the feeling amongst you guys from, you know, seeing all of this going on? It, it must have been a real wrench being out there and, and you know, not being a part of it. 
being yeah. so far behind the line. <laughs> I start I mean, with a, a genuine bit... question there, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> I was I, I knew it was coming. It's it's a regular theme, I would say. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, we, we deployed from from Germany as well, and and at the time there, there was uh, there was brief talk, a bit like you know, Nick was saying, Plan A to Plan G, you know, in a day. And we were going to go to Turkey and, and sort of from the north and do some stuff there, air defence. Um, and then it would change and it was Cyprus with a view of going forward. And then I think it was as much politically as well. They wanted the F3, the air defence tornado, yeah. to be doing it. Yeah. And again, those boys were, you know, a few miles behind the uh, the ground attack. I accept that. Um, so it was absolutely, I, I remember vividly, you know, just the, the boys coming through and we had all the, the phantoms were all just sort of on the line and we were doing our alert. But, you know, we, by then we realised it wasn't really going to happen for us. And then just seeing all the boys and the desert painted jets and all the, you know, a bit of feeling missing out, to be honest. You know, it was, uh, it was big at the time. It was huge. And, you know, we were very proud of the boys, you know, sort of coming back and, you know, we tried to play it cool, but we were all, you know, here's what, what's it like? And just <laughs> listening to, you know, what Nick said, just, you know, those boys did it. What was it like, you know, and just hearing your story, Nick, just mm. unbelievable. It's been, been brilliant. <laughs> and Godders, have you, have you got any, I know we've been talking for, for nearly two hours, haven't we, yeah. this, but... Um, yeah, but it's uh, not our, a normal mundane chat, so it's from... okay. Sorry, Ooh. JB, say that again. It's not our, our, our normal mundane chat, so it's okay. <laughs> I know, yeah, not the banal. Um, no, I, I purposely didn't put anything out to uh, because I knew we'd have ten, we'd have a million questions we'd ask on the way through, and we would, you know, mm. chat this long. So I purposely didn't put it out. So hopefully, this will be a surprise for both listeners. Um, <laughs> uh, Nick has given up his valuable time, and what has been, I mean, flipping amazing story. I, I, yeah, you know, all of us have done stuff in the last thirty years, but listening to you talk about that as if it was yesterday and it, to me it kind of <laughs> yesterday watching it on the telly and, and yeah yeah you yeah. know around with dunk i mean uh, there's probably another, there's probably another two hours where I, I could rattle on about there's all sorts of things i haven't talked about yet is two or low level missions which were you know the third one in particular were really really bad but it's a, it's a it's an hour in itself you know so uh, there's a teaser yeah <laughs> a <re> <laughs> brilliant Come back, come back in another thirty years. I'll tell you that one. <laughs> but um, no, Nick, it's been a pleasure, and um, yeah. uh, you know, a huge thank you for coming on and uh, and and talking like you have done. And uh, I'll go to sleep tonight dreaming of that. That I mean, for clearly people listening, they couldn't see that Nick had put his fingers crossed in front of each other. Yes, when he, I, I appreciate that. Wall of yeah, lead. Oh yes, um, yeah. I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, with the wall of lead rolling through the uh, as he rolled through the airfield, and uh, yeah. just fantastic what you guys did. And uh, I, you know, I think we all take our hats off to you. Yeah, I, I mean, I do sort of say that. Look, we we were not handpicked or anything. We would just have to be the guys there at the time. And as I say, any of you could have been there. It was just circumstances where it dictated that I was there and. You know, and, and there we are. So I've always had some good stories to dine off over the last uh, last few years. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, that's been absolutely fantastic. I think we'll leave it there. I mean, uh, that was that was that uh, was pretty cool and pretty unusual for the sort of stuff which we do. <laughs> um, you can find us on Twitter at uh, what is the Twitter account again? God is at Pilot Episodes Pod. Pilot Episodes Pod. I keep 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 on forgetting that. So from me, uh, from me, God is Dunk. And, uh, and Parky, and of course, a massive thank you to Nick. Goodbye, and see you in maybe a month or so. About that. All right, goodbye. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.